Hey everyone, just want to give you a quick heads up before the show begins. Uh, when I recorded this one with Nick and Maddie, we were having some tech difficulties uh, and Nick's audio does drop from time to time, but we always make sure that he comes back and repeats everything he was trying to say. So if you hear a crackle, don't stress, uh, you will hear everything that was intended. Nothing got cut out of the conversation. With that being said, I can now let you know that this week's episode of I Was a Teenage Film Snob is not brought to you by conventional time. Film Snob, I'm James Chalmers, your friendly neighbourhood film snob. And uh, this week, guys, we're continuing the director's series, a bit of a new thing we're doing with the show. It won't be every single week, but just want to play around with what we can do on the show. Last episode, we talked about Quentin Tarantino with uh, Jason from Midnight Terrors. And this week, we're going a little bit deeper, we're going a bit more cerebral, we're hitting the films of Christopher Nolan. Um, He's the thinking man's filmmaker, and there's nothing wrong with Tarantino, but he is wild and crazy, and that's the kind of show you want. But with a Nolan film, you want to talk to someone who's a, a planner, someone who does a lot of reading, does mind maps and uh, and plans for their their movie talk. And we want someone who can talk a lot and really dig into the depth of it. So I have not one but two guests today. It's the first time they've actually been on the show together. And I think it's the first time that they've ever met. But this feels like a match made in heaven for me. I've been very excited to talk to them. So I'm not even doing a full intro. Let's just bring them on straight away. Welcome back to the show, Nick Owen and Maddie Schultz. Welcome, guys. Hello, James. Thank you very much for having us back on the podcast. Excited to talk Nolan. That was such a professional like intro. <laughs> I was about to go. <laughs> <laughs> just to, it, just to recount every time Maddie's appeared. First time she was ever on. Get a was her. Get on me. <laughs> yeah, that was her first one. And then the second time, obviously, just uh, a plethora of uh, Pee Wee Herman impressions. So. <laughs> Um, how well, are I you? I think I said yay as well. Yay, hey. <laughs> <laughs> then there was also the recording you submitted for episode 50, which is you just sounding the most ocker Aussie I've ever heard you sound. You're like, g'day, Maddie Schultz here. Let's get through this list. Knock it out, bosh. Like that's <laughs> I aim to please. I, and you always do. Um, <laughs> it's so nice to have you guys both on the show. And as, as I said, first time together. And the first time I think you've really properly met. I think you've been in the same space before, but this is probably the first time you've, the most you've spoken to each other was probably the last half an hour before we even started recording. Is that fair to say? I think so. I was trying to think what <clears throat> we might have, what sort of James and Tina events we've been to that <clears throat> where we've been in the same room, but probably not met. So obviously the the 30th, that's one. That's one. Mm-hmm. And that was, and to be fair, at the 30th, I didn't even know Maddie that well. Um, <clears throat> like we knew of each other, but we didn't really cross paths until much later. And really, Maddie and I have only really become, I would say, strong friends since she came on the podcast. Because I'm that mm-hmm. isolated and self centered. I'm like, come on, my thing, and then I'll be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk long and in depth. And that's how we forged our friendship. So, Nick and I, after this episode, we're going to be very good friends. Well, to be that's fair, it. We've been texting like mad pretty much for the last couple of weeks and you guys just dove straight into it. There was no like kind of awkward preconceptions like, nope, we're just jumping in, we're talking. So I'm glad <laughs> we could all be adults about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm excited. I do think it's one of the great, great things that you can, I don't know, like that the internet has bored us is that you can interact with people who are like a big believer in when you just find your tribe and like, you mm. know, I don't have that many people um, in my sort of immediate 
friends group who you can I can nerd out with specific directors or talk films for hours. So like I love doing this stuff. So yeah, it was I was excited to just dive straight in. Yeah, for mm, sure. Before we before we started recording, Nick dropped the bomb that he's done some notes and some planning, and I swear I was just like applauding. I was so happy about it. <laughs> there was visible excitement. Like there were arms waving. There was some bouncing up and down. Um, <laughs> And not just because you've only had like four hours sleep either. Like that, that, that can be one of the causes. But um, yeah, Maddie, you are the resident planner. We know you do Venn diagrams and vision boards and and all that sort of stuff. I even we got a, a little video the other day of your young your young one just crawling over your your mind map. So yeah, he was getting into it as soon as I pulled out the textures. He was like, "What is this? Oh my god, paper! Oh my god, textures!" It made it really hard to get things on the page, but. I just kept pushing him over, pushing him aside, rolling him like a sausage roll across the floor, doing a little bit more until he came ge- back. Little geezer of the ears. Can you hear what his hot take on Nolan was? Oh, I think he was probably just like, Oi, what's going on here? You'll be surprised. His favourite film, Dunkirk. Um, you know, <laughs> not one that people would normally jump to. but um, yeah, Nah, his favourite film's The Gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> What are you talking about? I feel like we need to explain this joke, not just to the audience, but to Nick as well, because we, I've been calling your son a geezer for like the last 10 minutes. I'm sure he's like, why has he been so rude to this baby? Um, Rowan is a is a little thick boy. He's like, like, like he was wearing, the last time I saw him, he was wearing like the striped outfit and he looks like the kind of geezer you'd see at a pub in like a Guy Ritchie film. So yeah. then I just decided that his voice would be like, oh, hey, what you doing? And, you know, and just kind of just, I, just live, with, I live with my mom. She's a saint. Yeah. Is yeah. yeah, she took a couple of, <laughs> couple of pennies out of the church. Well, what can you do? Like, you know, <laughs> just like him forgiving his mum's mild crimes. Yeah. And he's not like roly-poly, like fat. He's like thick and heavy and like he's, he's like a brick child. He's just a little bruiser. Yeah. He's totally, totally ready to just get in a fight in a pub. Yeah, he's going <laughs> to be yeah, doing the just, I don't know why I'm picturing this just like. A cheeky goes down to the pub, gets in a bit of a fight, goes home. Best day of his life. Yeah, yeah. but still be, lives with his mum. So yeah, hundred yeah. percent. He'll be joining the Peaky Blinders soon. That is true. You know, all that time we're making those jokes about him, like calling his mum a criminal. I never connected the fact that you're his mum. <laughs> I was just like imagining like a like a tough British woman, but it's like no, I guess no. I'm talking about Maddie. <laughs> like, I am his mother. <laughs> like and I, we've been doing this joke for weeks and it's taken me till right now recorded on the show <laughs> for posterity that i'm an idiot <laughs> every time we bring up something about his mom if i say it it's fine but if you say it i'm like what's he trying to say about me could you imagine if i took it like in a really dark place like oh <laughs> like i'm not even gonna go there but no like, it's not even <laughs> oh my god Remember anyway how- <laughs> i'm very glad nick that you plan just as much as i do and I'm very glad that you are a massive Nolan fan, just like me. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I have to make notes because I have terrible recall. And the amount of times you'll know when I haven't written anything down and I come on James's podcast because I'll just stop and I'm like, I can't think of like the most basic well-known film or actor or something like that. So I, I have to make notes. Otherwise, I'll just be no good. It's seriously like listening to myself. That's exactly why I have to. <laughs> My brain is so scattered that I'm like, I need... I need the breadcrumbs. I need the breadcrumbs yeah, and the page. Right. <laughs> oh, so I was just enjoying you guys talk. I'm like, yes, I was right. It's working. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like a matchmaker. Well, have you ever done? But have you ever done that thing like where you're like, I've got two friends and they've never met, but I'm sure they'll get along. And then you put them together and they just don't interact. It's the worst thing possible. <laughs> like we've all been there. 
And I was like, look, I'm, t- I'm taking a risk and putting them on the show and hopefully it'll <laughs> it'll all work out. But it's I knew. I was like, this is gonna be great. Yeah. Um let's talk would about be, the- wouldn't it be wouldn't it be awkward if like one of us was super shy and gave you nothing, James. Well, that's the thing. I knew neither of you were shy. Like, so that was good. <laughs> and I knew that, I know that you're passionate enough about film, Nick, that like you'll be able to get that ball rolling. And I know that Maddie just loves to get involved in the conversation and um, always has, you know, really good um, opinions and stuff as well. So I was like, this is going to be fine. Yeah. Um, did you like how non-eloquently I put that? <laughs> I was like, um, I like how people talk. Uh, <clears throat> we should talk about the man of the hour, Christopher Nolan. Obviously, um, I would arguably say, like, the Spielberg of the modern age. Like, I don't mean Spielberg's the Spielberg of the modern age, but, like, if you had to, like, kind of talk to see who the torch is getting passed to, I'd have to say Christopher Nolan. Like, he just kind of feels about, right, he's probably one of the most ambitious filmmakers out there right now, making some of the biggest movies of all time. Even Oppenheimer, which we will talk about at some point today, um, is nothing like anything he's made before, but it's still a quintessential Nolan film. Um so if we go back to the start, before we jump into his filmography proper, where do you guys first experience Nolan? Like, what's the first film you see and what kind of kind of piques your interest in his work? Uh, I'll start with Nick. Um, <clears throat> well, I have to say, well, first off, just on your, that sort of um, intro to Nolan, I, I really couldn't agree more um, because I think the Spielbergness comes from the fact that, like, I think he's one of the few directors um, where every time he releases a new film, it's a real event, you know, yeah. it takes over the zeitgeist. It's probably the biggest or well, one of the biggest films of the year and there's a lot of talk about it. It's usually um, like maybe there's some amb- ambiguity to the film that has everyone talking. So um, I thought that was really accurate, James. Um, and more so than Spielberg himself, like Spielberg had a film out like late last year, The Fablemans, which is wonderful, but no one really talked about The Fablemans, but everyone was talking about Oppenheimer. And that's what mm. it gets on Spielberg. If you haven't seen The Fablemans, oh my God, like it's so good. But yeah, that's not talking about him the way they used to. And I think it's because we're in that new generation of younger di- directors and like Nolan's not, no spring chicken, he's in his 50s or something, but like he's pumping out these crackers, like this is these amazing, incredible like event pitches, like you said. Um. And in terms of when I first interacted, I'm probably going to, I think back in, you might be able to help me here, um, both of you, but when did the first of his Batman films come out? Was 2005. It about 2000? Yeah. There. So I don't think I knew enough about directors to link that to him. So even though I obviously saw that first, uh, I'm not going to count that because I would have seen it, disregarded whoever it was directed by. Um, but the first Nolan experience I really had was uh, The Dark Knight okay. and and I saw it quite loud I reckon I saw it really late in its run but the buzz like it was that film that everyone saw and mm. everyone said it was amazing um, and that was when I first started to probably get really you know in 2008 I would have been like um, I don't know 19, 20-ish so you're starting to get into films and know who the directors are and mm. Um, I just remember going to see The Dark Knight and it like blew my freaking mind. Yeah. Just, I mean, I won't go into the specifics because I think we'll probably delve into a few of the films. But yeah, so Dark Knight was when I really took notice and his visual style and how much he could pack into a film really just like grabbed me. Yeah, for sure. And what about you, Maddie? Where does it start for you? I can't remember if I saw. Um, the Dark Knight first or the Prestige first. Mm-hmm. So I definitely saw 
The Dark Knight in cinema as well because everyone was hyping it up and I think I was just on like 18. So everyone, like we got our licenses, we were driving, we were staying out, going to movies and dinner and whatever. Um, so I definitely saw it in cinema, but I don't know if I saw The Prestige before it. So I I think it may have just been The Prestige um, and that was really nice intro into how he's clever um, and how, yeah, you're not, you're not a passive audience. You've got to, yeah, be active. You've got to put in the work and then you get that reward at the end. And um, I think, yeah, I think it was the prestige that got me going. I'm so glad you, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about the prestige, but the prestige is like, just feels like the unsung hero of his filmography. Like no one talks about it enough. Um, it's for me, it's the prestige as well. I'd seen Begins. I actually have my mum to thank for it. She took me to those Nolan, those early Nolan films. So she took me to Batman Begins, took me to the prestige. And I was like, oh, this is made by the guy who did Batman Begins. Interesting. Because I think in 2005, when I saw Batman, I wasn't, surprisingly to most people, I wasn't the biggest comic book fan at that point. I hadn't like quite got my head around it. I'd seen some of the Spider-Man films and the X-Men films, but I was still learning who those characters were. And then I saw Batman Begins. I was like, oh, my God. And I was working in a video store at the time. So that's when I started picking up on directors once I started working in the video store. And then I went and saw Prestige, um, <clears throat> which is just it blew me away. Like, the Prestige is a phenomenal film. Like, pretty much everything he makes. Um, mm-hmm. So by the time Dark Knight came out, I also saw it late in the run, and I don't know why, because at that point I was on board with it. I just thought it was in Tina and I saw it a lot later, but because um, we were dating at that point. So by the time Dark Knight comes out, I'd seen Memento, I'd seen Batman Begins, I'd seen Prestige, I had an idea of who Nolan was. And then the Dark Knight obviously changed the course of history for mm. superhero films, cinema in general, like the world. Him, even, yeah. Yeah, him, yeah, him. yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think it's uh, the prestige is like it's kind of a mark I think of how how great he is that the prestige is like the the sort of hidden gem of his mm. filmography. Um, mm. Like it's not a bad like a lot of people it's like some obscure thing that you know only a few people have seen. But if it's like that that would be a lot of people's best film. I, th- I think. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think it's, um, <laughs> it's a really accessible film because um, sometimes yeah the complexity of some of his films or the, the layering of some of his films is a bit like maybe off-putting for some audiences, but the prestige is sort of like it's like an entry level. For yeah, sure. you still you still get it what he's going for. You still see the beginning glimpses of where he's gonna go, I guess, in his style, but it's it's accessible. And I think mm. that's why like that's a really good one that to go back and watch all the time. Mm. Or, you know, when it's on TV having a run, it's yeah, it's inclusive. Yeah. Like yeah. And I think um you made a really good point before Maddie about I think his films being like he doesn't uh, like talk down to the audience mm. and, mm. you know, sort of makes you do a bit of the work. But I kind of think in a way that that also keeps his film so rewatchable and so fresh is that you can watch them multiple times and still pick up things that you would have definitely missed the first time. So, yeah, I think that was a really good point as well. Mm. Mm. And he works consistently with his brother, Jonathan um, Nolan, who has, has written a lot of his films. And for those who don't know, Jonathan Nolan was – large responsible for the reintroduction of Westworld and HBO. And if you're like, why is this so hard to understand? That's why. Like the guy who writes Nolan, like Chris Nolan's films was like, you know what? I'm doing my own thing. It was just like let off the leash. And it got a bit too cerebral, even I think for the Nolan audience in, in some situations. But Well, um, I must say, I, I stuck with it. I watched it oh, good. all the way through. And yeah, it was, there was not many people in the world, I think, who would have stayed interested in like concepts that are that like cerebral and, uh, I went all the way yeah. through except I think um, I think the last season. 
I don't think I, I didn't watch the last season just because I think by then I'd had Rowan, um, so I just mm. couldn't commit mm. to the yeah the brain power. But yeah, I followed too, and I didn't know that, James. That's so cool. <laughs> I think I think we tapped. I think Tina and I tapped out about halfway through season two. Like the first season was confusing and hard to follow, but in a really fun, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And anyone who knew the source material knows that Westworld ends up with the kind of overthrow, like, you know, the, the mm. robots take over. Or if you've seen that Simpsons episode of Itchy and Scratchy Land. <laughs> um, but season two, we were halfway through, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I was like, this is so difficult to follow. Like, I just feel like he's he's trying, he's just been like, go on, figure it out. Like, and by the way, there is no twist. It's just deliberately confusing. And I'm sure there is a twist, but I just couldn't get my head around it to the point. I was like, you know what? Well, I'll come back. I'll, I'll come back to this when my brain's better. I'll give you like <clears throat> a bit of a teaser. Like it gets so just strange. Like one of the bad uh, AI robots um, programs flies to be able to like deliver these messages to humans, which then means the robots can control the humans. So the world flips. There's like a human kind of theme park. So, oh, okay. Um, okay. I'm back. Um, you've got me back in. Okay. <laughs> you've got me back in. <laughs> I'm doing HBO's good work. <laughs> I know. They should have just put that in the trailer. Like just no visuals. Just Nick comes out, you know, from HBO this season. There's a human park instead. I like, <laughs> watch it. <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> Peter Griffin, uh, Dan. <laughs> um, I mean, we're all around the same age. It doesn't surprise me that all of our first films and kind of introductions and all are quite similar. But you never know, like, I, although I guess Nolan, like, because he did Batman, that's kind of a central core of his filmography. So it's a very, it's like, whilst you mentioned Prestige being very entry level, I think, you know, having films like Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises, uh, Dark Knight in particular, like, that's a very easy gateway to his work as well like you can like oh it's batman everyone likes batman and even people who don't like batman kind of like batman um mm. and if you don't like batman it's hard pressed not to like the dark knight because it's such a great film um but um it, it was yeah, compared to someone like quentin tarantino i think like any one of his films could be anyone's first films no matter what age they are or even if you're all the same age like every person i've met has a different first quentin tarantino film to me but nolan just films like very much it's going to be one of those early ones. It's going to be something that released between 2005 and 2008 for the most part. Could um, you imagine if your first um, Nolan film is Oppenheimer? Like, could you imagine? Like, oh, and, be, um, and, then, and, then, and then the deliciousness of, like, going back through his back catalogue after being uh, like, this was amazing, and then going back and being like, oh, like, what a I, gift. Oh. I am envious of anyone who discovers Christopher Nolan in the future when he releases a new film. Like, that's going to be the wildest ride of your life. (laughs) Or, like, what if your first film is Tenet? Like, Tenet is a wonderful film. I don't think it's as overly complex as people said it was. But if if that's your first film, you may not go back. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be like starting, like, Quentin Tarantino and going with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood first. It's like, oh, this is what he is. It's like, no, that's not what Tarantino Mm. is at all. (laughs) Um. But, but but something else, just just while we're rambling <clears throat> about him in general, yeah, uh, that I really admire is he sort of. Um, I know he did a self-contained Batman trilogy, but I really love the fact that he champions sort of like non-IP. You know, yes. all of his films are like new and original. Um, I know Oppenheimer is a sort of um, a biopic, but like, um, yeah, that's something I think is really important as well. In part of mm. the conversation is that. 
<clears throat> like they're new, they're usually new and original ideas, um, which I just think is really important in the current state of cinema as well. Mm, and everything. And I, really respect, oh, sorry. Um, I really respect that the the big. Um, Oh God, I'm about to say cinemas. No, the the big corporations just let him. Like they mm-hmm. have enough trust and respect in him, and I love that. Yeah, he keeps everything so close to the chest, so that he can just create what he knows is good. And like they don't interfere because they can't. They don't know what he's going to do. That he hasn't submitted a script to them until the very last second. And like he doesn't do rewrites. He doesn't, you know, over film scenes and then cut them out later like he films what he what they write and what mm. they put on the page and that's what they do and so the corporations and what are, what, what are we trying to think of the studio like the yeah. studios yeah. yeah the studios come in and bully him it's and for the brilliant. most part it's been warner brothers who have had a history of interfering with directors like but mm. they let nolan gold go there are a couple of things i really like about him a the commitment to using film stock you know even you know in a world of digital where most people, almost everyone is using digital. I think him and Tarantino might be the last two, but he's dedicated to using film stock. He refuses to use CGI unless absolutely necessary. Um, so like the truck flip in Dark Knight would have been so much easier if he'd just digitally done it. He's like, no, we're flipping a goddamn truck. Yeah. And we're even crashing in, a plane in Tenet, yeah. Yeah, and and in Dark Knight Rises, that, that opening yeah. scene with the plane. Or um, in Oppenheimer, yeah, we're going to build a bomb. Like just... <laughs> I, I love all that, but I also love how there's a very straight line between the previous film to his next film and ha- look at kind of how he's paving the way. So if you look at um, Inception, which I think really changed the landscape of – like, it feels like every film he made has changed the landscape of film, you know, <laughs> like but you think about the visual effects in, in Inception and, like, the idea of folding a city in half and stuff like that, and then you jump to Interstellar, particularly that Tesseract scene behind the bookcase, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later. Like, you can see, like, he would never have got to this without Inception. Like, just, there's, like, a very, like, thorough line from point A to point B, and you can see how everything is, like, it's almost like dominoes. He's lining them up to knock them down later on. Um, it's mm. fascinating. Um, and it's so funny, like, before this podcast, back when I was a lot more snobby, I kind of, like, poo-pooed Nolan a little bit. Like, I liked him, but I poo-pooed him, and now I'm just, like, such a fan. I've really, like, come <laughs> full, you know, gone, done a full 180. Um, now, we, we're, ha- we're, we're happy to have you. It, yeah. Look, I, I appreciate you guys welcoming me to the tribe. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, we've got the, we're going to talk about his filmography, but before we do, you guys had a couple of questions. Do you want to save those for after we talked about the movies, or are we going to open with your questions and then go through the films one by one, what would you like to do? There's no real structure here, unlike a Nolan film. We're very unstructured. <clears throat> I'm happy to go questions at the end mm-hmm. or yeah. like a Nolan film, we could do like one question now, go some of the way through the narrative, come back to another question. <clears throat> All right, well, what about this? I'm going to say... <laughs> no. <laughs> this is like before the joke that I made about Manhunter, like before we started recording. I was concentrating on what I was doing, so I didn't hear the joke. Um, well, I could read out the questions and then when the movie... You know what? Let's leave them to the end. Let's do that. That's easy. Um, yeah. So he's been around since 99, I think it was, 2001. His first flick is a movie called Following. Now, I've never seen Following. It's not available in Australia. Has anyone seen Following? No. It's a no, no from me, dog. All right, no. what a bad way to start the show. I'm just kidding. It's totally fine. It's all, well, yeah. That was, that was why we couldn't do it. I couldn't yeah. find, yeah, I couldn't find a copy, yeah, of it anywhere. Yeah, it's really tough to find. I don't know if it's like a special feature on an, an import or something like that. We will find it and we will watch the following at some point, but we haven't seen it yet. But let's jump to the film that everyone kind of regards his first film. It's Memento, Guy Pierce, 
Um, who else is it? Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann Moss and um, um, oh god, I've got his name. Pantoliano, that guy. Oh, jo- Joey Pants. Yeah. Joey, yeah. Joey Pants. Nothing from from the Matrix. They say ignorance is bliss. I think of the guy from. I think of Eddie from Baby's Day Out. <laughs> I haven't seen Baby's Day Out. So, I mean, I could also oh, go God. with the reporter from Daredevil, Ben Affleck's Daredevil in 2003. Go he get him, Red. Like, yeah. <laughs> Joey Pants, what a character. Or Soprano is probably where he's most known from. Oh, probably, yeah. Um, Memento, not the first film I saw, but what a – like, what a like, – that film tells his future. Like you watch Memento and you like, you could like that starts everything. It's non-linear. It's confusing. It's a mystery. Like it is the core of everything that Nolan would grow to become. Like, when did you guys first see it? What are your thoughts on the, on Memento? Um, yeah. I'll let you guys just jump in and talk as we've been doing. Uh, you go ahead, Maddie. Uh, this one's the one I wasn't really able to rewatch. So I'll be minimal on this one. I was sort of the same. I've seen it. I've only seen it once and it was a couple of years ago. Um, but I remember enough of like, yeah, it was an intro into like, cool, Nolan likes to tell his stories non-linear or cool, Nolan likes to play with time mm. deliberately to mess with our memories, like to mess with our perception, to mess with our memory. Um, and I thought this one was cool in that, yeah, like we were receiving the information because the film's going forwards and backwards at the same time, we're receiving the information really similar um, to the protagonist. Like I thought that was really, really clever. And I thought um, like it, it forces the viewer to be like in the subjective standpoint as well. Like it forces us to feel like he does, to feel that anxiety, to feel that like sense of unbalance and that like instability. So I remember feeling that. And that was like, yeah, off-putting but clever. So I enjoyed mm. the cleverness of it. I enjoyed once I got to the end of the film, putting all the pieces together and feeling like on top of it. But as it's happening, yeah, I felt unrest and like, yeah, like I didn't have footing just like the character did. And I thought that was really clever, a clever way to do it because it wasn't exactly through like camera angles and sound as heavily as other films try and do. It was mm. to do with the releasing of information which i thought that was really clever mm. and it's mm. such like a bold way to structure your kind of first um hollywood film like mm. i've seen this video like i might have even mentioned it um <clears throat> on another podcast um james but yeah i've seen this video of him explaining the time yeah. structure of that where yeah it's like kind of like a semi-circle and he's like you're here and then you're here and then you're here and it's just yeah. like, oh man, this guy's brain is mm. is just works differently to mine. <laughs> to most people's, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm. What I think the genius of this film is that you've got an unreliable narrator, mm. but unlike most of your unreliable narrators, he's not aware that he's an unreliable narrator. Like most of the time, your unreliable narrator tends to be someone who's like, you know, telling half truths or you know, kind of like trying to present themselves in a maybe a better light than they are. This guy's mm. got amnesia. He cannot remember anything. He has to tattoo himself to remind him. So not only is he unreliable, he doesn't even realize it. So he thinks every day like the information tattooed is fact, but as the film goes, it unravels and turns out that nothing he knows is accurate. Uh, and mm. that was just like a head spin for me. The, I said the first time, the only time I've seen it was about 10 years ago as well. But just like as the film kind of spirals and spirals, just like, oh, my God, like what is it? Like, 
it's something I find myself asking a lot in Nolan's film is, and that's what is real? Like, what is real in this movie? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, that was the first time I asked that question. I've asked it so many times since with his movies. Um, but just like, a, again, like, you think about most directors' debuts, um, especially auteurs, you know, like Christopher Nolan's a true auteur. Like, he writes and directs his own stuff. Like, he produces original content. Most of them try to start it a little bit simple. Like, even Reservoir Dogs, which is, you know, I feel like I've mentioned Tarantino a lot in this episode, but it's not been deliberate. He's just the easy go-to. <laughs> pretty standard film like nothing you know overly ambitious but it's still yeah and it, it's different to like most debuts but it's still pretty straightforward and they jump to memento and you're like how did he who did he convince that this was the mm. right thing to do who believed in it? i mean they, they were right to do it but oh my god like who thought this was the way and i wonder if he even like sat guy pierced down and went right imagine a straight line and then halfway i want you to bend it back on itself and then we're going to mesh it together like a sandwich and that's how we're going to tell the story. Like yeah. how did he, how was he like, hey, oh, actually, yeah, like I don't even know how you would have told him what was going on. But I guess at the same time if you don't and you're telling him scene by scene and like, yeah, Guy Pierce is having to act out scene by scene almost without knowing the full picture, it's not like it's going to be harmful to the picture. I think <laughs> he just did this. I think he just went and folded it. Yeah. And then put a pen through it. <laughs> he made a black hole. Yeah, he made a black hole. He's like, don't worry about time. It doesn't matter. That was a visual mm. gag for the listeners. I did, <laughs> yeah. the, inter- I did the interstellar but pen I was gag. Thinking, like, honestly, <laughs> I feel like that's probably the only way you can get a good performance out of Guy. Well, not a good performance because he's a great actor, but, you know, like that's how you would tell him to do that. Um, yeah. You know, like, yeah. if um, I tell just you be the like, whole all right, today. Wreck it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Today, say these words. <laughs> <laughs> it um, it's a it's a great flick. Like, and it's one that I definitely haven't watched enough. Um, I always think back to that joke in American Dad. And I don't know if you guys have seen, ever watched American Dad, but there's like a time travel episode. He's like, have you seen Memento? Not as good the second time because like you know all the twists like that. Um, I remember that joke yeah. better than most of the stuff in the movie. But it is a great flick, and a, <laughs> what a killer intro to his filmography following notwithstanding because we haven't seen it mm. yeah now i'm gonna this is the, the next film is the last film of his i haven't seen and then I'll, i can talk about everything pretty openly insomnia which is a thriller with al pacino and um and robin williams have either of you guys seen insomnia no, i am no. ashamed to say that this one is just completely not on my radar as a nolan film like i, I always forget I know, that it's him like <laughs> yeah i know of the film but i just never yeah so I, i'm i'm Gonna have to say an apology on this one as well. That's okay. Yeah, He's gonna he, no. That's all good. It's it was gonna happen. There are gonna be some directors we talk about. We haven't seen all the films. At least we've all not seen them. So there's not just like two of us been like, now please tell us what the movie's about, Maddie. Just go through all of it, and then we'll just not. Um, it came out around the time that Robin Williams was doing his whole like thriller series. Like he kind of stepped away from comedy and drama. He did a bunch of like serial killer movies. Like he was in One Hour Photo, which is incredible, by the way, if you've ever seen. One hour photo. <laughs> Can I just tell you that the um, the main thing I remember from that is when he like takes a shit in their toilet. That he's when he's stalking them. I don't know why. That's the main thing I remember. I did one hour photo. It's been a long time since since that came out. Uh, since I've seen that one. Um, all right, we can skip over insomnia and let's talk about. Uh, I guess the introduction for most of us, and that is for most people probably our age, and that's Batman Begins. 2005, we haven't seen a Batman movie in seven years. So it was kind of killed by Batman and Robin, which is a film that I actually quite enjoy for nostalgia purposes. But um, 
We have Batman Begins, the first first Batman film in seven years. Christian Bale, a relatively unknown actor, I think, to a lot of people. He'd done a bunch of stuff, but this is kind of like his global breakout role. Um, and for the first time ever, we see like a dark, grounded, gritty Batman. I think that's such a good starting point because, like, I think what was so uh, eye-catching about this and, like, why I think everyone paid so much attention was, like, it kind of stripped Batman back from, mm. like, I think over the course of the 90s it had um, gotten sort of campier and campier and um, I guess, I don't know, like, I don't know if less serious is the right word because the Burton ones aren't overly serious, but this it felt so grounded. It felt... Mm. Um, that like that it felt like someone could actually do this, you know, mm, for sure. Um, I think um, I think this one moved more into humanizing um, Bruce Wayne. I think mm-hmm. the other ones still were good. There was camp movement. There was silly moments. There was homage to the comic books with the other ones, but he seemed still a bit like unbreakable. He still seemed a bit impervious. Mm. Um, in that superhero bravado way, whether it's in this one, they were like, nah, we're going to give you a guy that, like, we can break. We're going to mm. give you a guy that we can, like, shatter and, and humanise with trauma and pain and, um, you know, connections to relationships that are really accessible. I think I think that might have been a starting point or an angle for Nolan to be like, nah, we're going to give you a dude that's busted yeah. from the beginning. And I thought that was really clever. And they really legitimise the genre by bringing some real powerhouse actors. Like Killian Murphy wasn't Killian Murphy at this point, but he's a fantastic antagonist. But you've got Liam Neeson, who's like, oh. you know, to come off a decade of brilliant work in the 90s. You've got Morgan Freeman. You've got Michael Caine playing Michael Alfred. Caine. Poor Michael Goff, who did like all those 90s Batman films. He's probably like, I'm going to be the only Alfred ever, the best out. <laughs> and like, who could be better than me? Okay, Michael Caine. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Katie Holmes, who I actually really dig in Batman Begins. I actually prefer her as Rachel over um, over Me Mega Gyllenhaal. Me too. And I couldn't figure out what it was for a long time and then I realised because Maggie Gyllenhaal, like, walks around like you can't really shake her. She's got so much confidence. She exudes confidence where there's at least, yeah, at least Katie Holmes has this sort of sort of more innocent nature of, like, she can really be hurt or, like, she's... Yeah, she's not so cocky. I think I liked that she wasn't so cocky. And I think that I also think her chemistry with Christian Bale is slightly better. Like, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal's got quite good chemistry, but because the second film is very much, and we'll definitely talk about Dark Knight soon, but Mm. it's almost, in in the first one, like, Bruce is trying to, like, figure out who he is, trying to, like, put the trauma behind and kind of, you know, hold on to the relationships that, he still has in his life. Whereas in the second film, like Maggie, uh, Maggie, um, Rachel Dawes is ready to move on. She's like, you know what? Like mm. I was into you, but now I'm not. I found this new guy. And I, so it's almost like he's chasing someone he can't get. Whereas in the first film, she seems quite attainable still because he's figuring things out and she's open to it. So like to put a new actress in that role and have that relationship change kind of makes, it, I, I don't know. I found it harder to kind of get into. Whereas the first one is, I don't know, it's almost more amicable. There's still like there's still hope for them, but by the second one, it's like there's not really any hope. And she plays it very cold as well. Mm. It's my favorite of the trilogy, Batman Begins. Um I I've said this shockingly. Oh, that's the first hot take of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I was not expecting that. It is my favorite of the trilogy. It's where he's most Batman. Um, like and like and you know. 
Dark Knight is a perfect film. I love the Dark Knight and it is the best of the three. I'm not an idiot. But the first one's my favorite because you really get to spotlight Batman. There's that really wonderful like scene on the docks where he's dropping down from the sky, like picking up, you know, thugs, making them disappear. He's whipping batarangs out of the shadows. He ties the guy to the lights that create the bat signal. We didn't even talk about Gary Oldman, who's playing Commissioner Gordon. Like uh, when he co- put the coat around his shoulders uh, right at the beginning, so I was good. like, I love you. Perfect <laughs> casting. Best yeah, Commissioner so Gordon. Good. Best Maybe best Batman Commissioner Gordon relationship since until the Batman. I think the Batman does maybe an equally good job, um, and I would say best Alfred of the of all the films as well. Like Mark mm, Kane mm. is so wonderful. Like, and um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name who plays um, Thomas Wayne, but the idea of that whole why did we fall down so we can learn to pick ourselves yeah, up, and that yeah. just comes that kind of overarching theme of the trilogy. Also, um, probably the most heartbreaking. I mean, by the I mean, we're now in our thirties. I've seen Thomas and Martha Wayne get killed more times than I can count. More than Uncle Ben. (laughs) Yeah. Um, If I have to see them get killed one more time, I don't think I can take it. No more pearls. It's it's particularly heartbreaking, this one. Um, But also just that whole section of training with the – is it the League of Shadows? Is that what they're Mm. known as? Up in that that mountain um, retreat is so sick. That's such a cool – like. I don't know, what, half an hour of the film? So Qui-Gon Jinn is my favourite um, Jedi, and so as soon as I saw him in that film as another sort of mentor figure, I was just like, the best! <laughs> yeah, I was so excited. <laughs> and he's got so many great lines in that film as well, like, um, what is it, you sacrifice sure footing for a killing blow, and then, like, he just knocks the ice out from underneath him, or yeah. um, you burnt my house up. You burnt my house down and left me for dead. I'm just returning the favour. Like, yeah. well, you must be aware of your surroundings. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, well, that I did the Batman voice. This is the first time we've heard Batman with a Batman voice. How are our, our, what are our thoughts on it? I actually quite like the Bale Batman voice. I think it gets coarser over the trilogy and by Rises mm. it's a bit, bit insane. But I think it begins. It's quite good. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't mind it. Yeah. I've got to be honest, it's not something I even – pay attention to (laughs) me neither it wasn't yeah it wasn't irritating or jarring or anything Mm. no i thought it was fine it um i just i think i found the scarecrow's voice a bit more like what like Mm. it was a bit too messed with um yeah yeah. i would say the only uh not complaint the only thing i could say about the this film that isn't flawless is Mm. um is it Tom Wilkinson? Is that the actor? Oh, who plays um, uh, Falcone? Yeah, his accent is shocking to me. He's like, <laughs> yeah. he's like a wise guy. He's like, what are you doing here, Batman? <laughs> I could shoot you and no one yeah. blink an eye. Yeah. yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I don't know. Every, like, I, you know what it does? It just takes me out of the film, that scene, every time. I feel like the first one has, like, its foot slightly in the door of, like, the comic world mm. the cheese world slightly mm. as well so they're like easing you through and then as you get through the trilogy like it moves away from that and away from like the burton world and the you know the comic world and then by the third one i feel like it gets more its foot in the door in like tenant like you yeah. get in yeah i feel like there's a sort of arc that happens where it sort of like leaves that behind and then moves a bit more yeah to the tenant direction well the, yeah. fir- the first one he made the genius decision to make scarecrow the villain and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of Batman fans are like, Scarecrow, like, really? Like, that's you. Like, why would you go with someone everyone knows? But you get to play with neurotoxin, which means in the third act, 
You can have a headless horseman. You can have <laughs> Batman look like a monster. Like you can do all these things because the neurotoxins, it's kind of actually a genius way to get away with some of the silliness from the comics that you couldn't do with Bane, for example. Like, and we'll, we'll mm. talk about Dark Knight Rises. I do like it, but it's it's my least favorite of the trilogy. Um, <laughs> but I just love it's just the whole aesthetic of it. There's a like they just captured the spirit of Gotham perfect. It was the first time I've seen Gotham in the real world. My favorite version of Gotham is obviously in Dark Knight. I've talked about that opening sequence every chance I get on this podcast, uh, and we'll talk about it again soon. Um, <laughs> but I think it's pretty flawless. I think it's just. It sets up the trilogy so well. It's not a long flick. It's just over two hours. It's about two two hours ten or something. Like it's not for like considering most superhero films are now two and a half hours minimum. It does a pretty good job of telling a pretty succinct story, juggling a bunch of storylines, and getting a lot of lore done in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time while never being boring. And mm. how how flippant great is the sass from Alfred in the first film? Yes. Like, when he, like, I, I've left my whole fortune to you, and so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to rise you from the dead because apparently you've been declared dead, so everything's mine. So you can take the jag out whenever you want. Just bring it <laughs> yeah. back with a full tank. Like, <laughs> yeah. He hasn't been that sassy since Miss Congeniality. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, or, like, what's the point of all them bloody push-ups? You can't lift a log. Like, <laughs> can't lift a log, yeah. He's so sassy. I flip and love it. <laughs> it's before we, get, it's before we get sad, Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, sad. We'll get there. We'll get to yeah. because he is still Barry, another Batman. He is still mm. pretty sassy in in the Dark Knight. He's got that line where he's like, um, the the tumbler in the middle of the day. Uh, you know, did, did need a bit more subtle. Oh, Lamborghini then. Like, just... which, which did you notice that the Lamborghini then? Like, I forgot what it is the class of Lamborghini. I can't remember what the word is, but the word's Latin for bat. Of course, it so is. He's literally in a Lamborghini bat mobile, and you're like, oh, for far out, like. <laughs> Um, well, if you look at the soundtrack, which of course is done by um, Hans Zimmer, um, and oh, the, I, I think it's the first Hans Zimmer collaboration. Well, certainly not the last. I think it's the first time Hans Zimmer does a Nolan film. If you look at the track of all the the score, there are like six in a row. And if you look at the first, one, it spells out Batman. It's oh, like it's like beware, cool. attack, something, Molossus. I, I remember Molossus because Molossus is that song that we like. It's not as easy to hum as like the the Danny Elfman stuff. But it's like the dun, 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 like the really like orchestral, like, oh, mm. Batman's about to go out and take, you know, punish well, some fools. It's funny you mentioned uh, the score. So Alicia and I went to the the Melbourne, or the MSO Symphony yeah. Orchestra did did um, a Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. retrospective um, so a couple cool. months ago. And it was such, it was like seriously one of the best nights of entertainment I've had in like the last 10 years. It was so great. Um and they they uh, had these two guys from a podcast come on, and they sort of talked about each score before they did it. And what's really interesting about that bat, like his Batman score for the Nolan films, which is just like those two notes, and it's like really dramatic. Mm. You can, I don't know what it is, like dur, dur. Um, that's like he just like pitched down two notes from Danny Elfman's um, Batman score from the originals or something oh, like really? that. I think I'm getting mm. that right. Um, yeah, which I thought was like so interesting. Yeah, that's like borrowing from, from that. Elfman. Mm. Yeah, that's like finding oh, out that the Nazgul theme is just the shy theme in reverse in the minor chord. I found that out this year. And I was like, "That's amazing! Incredibly yeah. lazy, but amazing." Well, yeah, it's doing reverse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we mentioned, well, I mentioned the Tumblr as well. First time we've seen a Batman Batman vehicle look like an assault vehicle. Um, I kind of love it. 
I didn't think that I didn't you know I didn't know how to feel about it the first time, but in the real world, it kind of makes sense. They did make it work eventually in you know the the Matt Reeves film, but I really do like the Tumblr. There's a lot of fun there, and of course, the the little like sidecar turning into a motorcycle in the second film definitely mm. a nice little mm. upgrade as well. But do you have any thoughts on the Tumblr, or are you just like, yeah, it's a car? Now I like. I think it really suits like this series because it's like again, it feels like something that would be in an R and D. Mm. department for for a company like that and i think mm. like the the long long batmobile of the 90s is like i don't know how well that I don't know, it might just be a bit silly for this series mm, i like the aesthetics of it with its it had like you know sharp it's sharp edges it's sharp mm. panels um i think that really worked for sort of you know we're on a razor's edge you know gotham's like almost like glass ready to break almost like mm. i think it matched that really well so but this I, is why you get maddie like, on the show what a great analogy but <laughs> I keep, um, well i kept oh my god i don't i'm gonna say it doesn't matter i don't want to like poo poo on something i loved the external of the vehicle but i kept uh i just kept laughing and laughing and i just ruined the watching experience every time he's in the car and he does like the bloody body roll to get like down forward where he's like oh yeah like he's so bloody doing this big like worm dive down into his stomach and i was like you don't need to be on into the guts of the tumbler yeah um, like every time i was like he's black like oh uh, i couldn't help it i um i love one of my favorite moments in that flick is when the cops are chasing him and they go up like the, the parking, the parking garage, mm. or whatever. And like, mm. where's he going to go? He's stu- stuck and he just blows a side out of it, just launches off onto the roofs. And somehow he's on like this terracotta tiled roofs and the car is staying on top. It's not falling through. It's just a, uh, it's just a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's the, yeah, cause most people rank it third in, in the trilogy and that's fine. I understand why, but to me, it's just, I think it's so much better than people give it credit for. Like, without that film, you get nothing in his trilogy. Like, it's just a perfect way to start off a franchise. I think it's um, a great setup. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and the suit. Like, the suit is great. Like, uh, there's so much we can talk about. Um, we didn't really talk about Mor- uh, Morgan Freeman too much, but he also brings the sass. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with that whole, like, you know, the whole, like, um, uh, base jumping, spelunking, like, all the just kind of back and forth. <laughs> um, uh, also interesting that this was my introduction to what the, whatever the hell spelunking was i've never heard of that before this <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness all right let's uh let's step away for batman for a moment and we'll come back to it shortly uh next up is a film we were talking about lovingly before which is the prestige which to me really is it's probably not in my top three but it is the gem the underrated gem of his of his filmography like no one talks about this film enough we talked about it a lot of the podcast because in our top 50 films of all time or 50 films to watch before you die but the prestige is just magnificent it can, it's a movie about like what is it like 19th century magicians mm-hmm. and like it should not it shouldn't really work but it works so well yeah. uh, you get christian bale back again michael kane back again hugh jackman um and uh, and scarlett johansson scarlett's in there yeah um, and it's just basically about two rival magicians competing for like the affections of the audience. In uh, I think it's the 19th century, maybe it's the early 20th century. I'm not quite sure, but like it's a very like kind of. Um, I was like electricity. So yeah, 19th. yeah, it's like okay, uh, what's yeah. what's the revolution called when they had the industrial revolution? It's like after the yeah. industrial revolution. Um, but what a wonderful flick! Like it's fun. It's it's 
silly at times. It's really tense. Like in the mm. way they kind of go, like, and it's very cutthroat as well. Like you don't think about it, but like the kind of the means they go to, to like kind of upshow, kind of upshow each other. Um, well, it's really uh, about the rivalry between the two magicians, isn't it? So yeah. always trying to one up each other. I guess what's uh, am I correct in remembering that the prestige mm-hmm. is is like that moment after a you've done a trick and you get the reveal and the crowd is a yeah, I think that's third, what the press and yeah, yes, it's them the trying part to, of a trick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So trying to one up each other. Um, mm. And Hugh Jackman is great in that, <laughs> even though he like duplicates himself and drowns his, his own body. <laughs> How good is um? How good is David um, Bowie as Tesla? Yeah, I love as him Tesla, as Tesla. Yeah, so he's good. Fantastic. I always forget if he's in that one or The Illusionist because The Illusionist came out around the same time. It's very similar to it's about magicians, and I always mm. for some reason I always think that he's playing Tesla in that one because that's about like light bulbs and stuff. But no, he's uh-huh. in Prestige. Um, yeah, Hugh Jackman is really good in it, and there's just that. What is it? There's this ongoing thing. This because there's clues. Like with all Nolan films, like this, there, there are clues. And like there's a repeated line Scarlett Johansson says, where he's like, "You know, I love you." And she's like, "Not today, you don't." Or like, "Today, mm. you do." Mm. And like then, obviously, the big reveal at the end. Like again, like I had that. What am I watching? <laughs> like I find um, that's one of the other um, classic tropes of Nolan is that he actually gives you the answers right at the beginning, or mm. he. He loves to hide um, the answers in plain sight, mm. which I find really fun when you do the rewatch or really fun when you reflect and chat about a film afterwards. He does literally hide things in plain sight all the time. Like the opening scene in The Prestige is you see multiple birds. So it's mm. something to do with multiples and, and clones. Mm. And like in one of the opening scenes with, um, you know, the, the trick when they're, just you know starting out magicians and they're you know apprentices of another one they do the bird in the cage trick and one of these little boys says but where's his brother like he literally Mm. gives you these answers that you just Mm. you're not looking for because you're looking for just something grander or like I just I think he's so cheeky that he or he always does it he always puts things in plain sight because he knows you're not going to be looking for them and I think that's yeah I like that cheekiness and that Knowing, I think it's so cool. I, I will say, in a in a career of films that have upsetting moments in them throughout, I think the bird trick is the most upsetting thing he's ever done. Like knowing that, like it's a cage that snaps and kills birds. I was just like, oh my god! Like I'm a child watching this. Yeah, but he rectifies that in that um, you know Hugh Jackman's character re re rigs the cage so that it doesn't kill the bird. Yeah. So like he gives us this sort of redemption of like. Oh, we've you know moved past that, and we're not we're going to be a bit more humane. But yeah, I find um I find it really interesting that you know I thought it was the downfall of Hugh Jackman's character was yeah trying to one up or expose Christian Bale, but I find there's another part of him that his downfall is that he assumes he's the only one that can lead a dual life because mm. the whole time he's actually another person. He's a lord. He's got money, but he doesn't want to be that person. So he pretends to be some cheap, penniless guy so that he can pursue magic and do the thing that he loves. So he's, mm. his arrogance of thinking he can be the only person pretending to be somebody else is really what screws him up from the beginning. 
And like, you don't know that until like right at the end, like you have mm. to sit and do the hard work and it's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is definitely one I need to go back and like put at the top of my rewatch list. Cause even though it's, it hasn't been that long, like it's probably been a few years since I've seen it, but like, this is just jogging so many good memories of this film. <laughs> Me too. I only watched like a year or two ago and I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, like I always just think of like, is it Hugh Jackman that gets his hand splintered by the cage, or is it like it was a Christian Bale? I can't remember I one of them. Christian Bale, I think. Yeah, Christian one of them. Christian Bale gets his finger shot off by Hugh Jackman, and so the twin then has to cut his own finger off as well to match. And then Hugh Jackman is doing the cage trick with um, another woman on stage, and Bale sabotages it so it cuts the woman's fingers. Oh, that's right. Yep. And then he suddenly won't get booked by anyone. So that's, that's when right. he has time to go hunting and follow the diary and. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad. Like, look, we're a regular Harry, Ron, and Hermione here. <laughs> like, one of us kind of did the work. One of us didn't really do the work at all. And Hermione, he's picking up the scraps for us. <laughs> but that's probably the one I watched the most recently as well. Mm. Other than the Batman's, I watched that pretty recently. So that's why it's like fresh. We're yeah. like, watch this film. It's so wonderful. We haven't watched it in ages, but watch it. It's really good. Yeah. It is but really the fact good. That you remember the fact that you have this like warmth and this mm. gratitude for this film but you can't remember total specifics. That says so much about a film. It's just one of those ones where you don't need to remember, like, I don't need to remember to tell you it's good. Like, just go and check it out. It's such a wonderful mm. flick. And, like, again, like, it kind of got, I think it got lost because you had Begins and Dark Knight and then Inception happens. Then suddenly it's just, like, Nolan fever. Like, here's all mm. all these kind of sci-fi things he does after that. So Prestige, you know, poor old Prestige, get kind of, like, hidden in, in amongst the, the weeds there. But um, oh, it's so wonderful. Um, sadly, we don't have much more to say about, about it, though, but it's great. Go check out Prestige. Um, which brings us to the first true jewel of the crown. I think there are a couple. Like This is definitely – well, I'll save it, actually, because we're going to talk about some, some stuff towards the end of the show. The Dark Knight comes out in 2008. DC hasn't, done it, like, hasn't really done anything in a while. They did uh, Superman Returns, which kind of failed at, uh, at the theatre, and DC have they're not doing any of their other characters. They're not doing any Justice League stuff yet. Like they're just relying on Batman and Superman. Marvel's just kicked off their universe with Iron Man, which was a huge hit. And DC needed a win. And the Dark Knight comes out. Heath Ledger is the Joker. Um, sadly passes away either just before the film's release or during the film's release. Which obviously, you know, you know, don't don't want to, you know, don't want to kind of glorify it, but like it did. You know, peak interest as well, like knowing that you know this kind of torment he went through playing this character kind of led him to have some some trouble, you know, off the set or whatever. But it just like takes the world by storm. Like a Batman film, like just takes over everything, and rightfully so. Like this flick is a goddamn masterpiece. I said Begins is my favorite, but I'm not an idiot. This is the best Batman film ever made. Agreed. I think yeah, I think you said it, James. It is just a masterpiece. Like, and I think. This is when it, the penny dropped for me that that Nolan was a master. You know, it's the ability to weave like it's a big, big film. Like, there's a lot of different storylines. He's he's including like two two villains who could have their own films, mm-hmm. and the way that the storylines interact and then like crescendo at the end is just breathtaking, really. Mm. Um, and I know, James, you and me, like, is there a podcast that goes by where we don't mention, like, the opening scene? Like, like it's I don't so know. good. There's something that really he 
can only do, which is cap, like capturing these images that are so crisp and like that cityscape, like from the first shot, I'm just, I'll forget whatever I'm doing and I'm like phone down, I'm in. And it's that droning sound, whatever that sound is that Zimmer's using in the score, just like it sets you on edge straight away. It's just like mm. as it kind of zooms in and the window blows and then suddenly we're off. Like, and, you know, obviously we know the the the, uh, the twist now, but just like all the different clowns, like handing off like the different roles and then killing the previous one so there's less money to share, um, building up to that reveal of Heath Ledger as the Joker. Like, And again, like, Music is such an important part in this opening sequence. Like it's important in all of Nolan's films, but just like it slowly builds and builds. And then when it does finally reveal, it goes in this weird frequency almost where it's like, it's so alarming to hear. And like this drop of the bass, which is, you know, very, very Zimmer, especially modern Zimmer now, like just mm-hmm. to show, and it's just terrifying. You're like, Oh my God, like, look at this monster. <laughs> like he's just a guy in, in war paint, but he's just so terrifying. Um, it's, a perfect opening sequence to a film. Like I don't, I can't think of a, a superhero film or any, you know, a superhero film in particular that opens better than Dark Knight. Like, mm. I love that. Um, yeah, Nolan always speaks about, um, you know, we start with an idea and then pull it back and pair it back and pair it back to its most basic and crisp and cleanest, mm. and that is the best version it's going to be. And with that opening scene. Like no one shot goes for too long or lingers mm. too long or gives anything away. Nothing's too fast that it's irritating. Like the timing of the shot changes, the 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 style of the cameras, the the yeah the what the color scape. Like mm. everything you can see has been planned, has been particular, and has a rhythm to it specifically to like set you on edge or specifically to make you know that this is a worrisome character and like you're not just setting up comfortable you're starting off already like holding your breath Mm. to start a film already taking shallower breaths holding still like it's yeah it's so purposeful it's so just yeah it feels like a wind-up toy almost like Mm. you feel the wind-up happening and you don't know when the wind-up's going to go off and so you're just sitting there just you are helpless and I just adore it. And there are just some decisions like, first of all, this is the first time we've, we're really seeing Gotham City during the daytime. And like, cause even in begins, it's always overcast during the day, but this is a bright sunny day. And this is showing you, this is a villain who's like, I'm going to come out when Batman doesn't come out. I'm going to do it. All the cops are around. Cause it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the cops are around. I can get away with it. It's Batman. I've got to worry about it. So I'm going to go where he doesn't come during the daytime. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to say, they're going to challenge Gotham City in the middle of the day. Um, so that decision alone, I think, is incredible to start a Batman film, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, maybe two, maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, sun's out, like, and, you know, just no one can, you know, stop him. But then the idea of, like, his twisted sense of humour, like, we all know the Joker, you know, is maniacal and, like, finds, you know, the weirdest things funny, but the idea that he's happy to kill off all of his henchmen, but then spares the bank manager with a gag grenade... Like, if you need to know, like, the tone of this character for this film, that that's it there in a nutshell. You're like... Is that what that is? I thought it was a... I thought it was paying homage to one of the original um, Jokers where he always used to do gas and the gas used to make his victims, like, laugh and smile to death. 
I thought it well, was I'd, like I'd, I don't think the bank manager dies. Like some gas comes out because he's surprised, but but, but we don't see I him again. The gas was. I thought it was a toxin that he's used in like previous things, and so it's, like that's it's, one of his original weapons where he's using that for the last time, and then he clicks over to using a knife for this film. Is his main weapon interesting? I mean, that's like uh, the, your. Th- we both got two different theories. There. I think they're both viable. Nick, yeah, tell us who's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know either. The draw. No, I, I never. I never thought about. It. I. I just assumed it was like, um, like a smoke grenade or something like that. So I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like the idea was like. He's, you know, using it like he's putting it as like, oh, my God, the worst thing you could do is put a grenade in someone's mouth. That's terrifying. And then, gotcha. Like, just, that's what I always interpret it as. But the thing about this movie and this character in particular is the Joker does that again and again and again with the, you want to know how I got these scars story. So mm-hmm. I've just I've just now had a what am I watching moment with this film because I'm like the whole time, I'm like, well, that's what it is. And you've given me something both completely different to life. I'm like, now I don't know what it is anymore. Yeah, uh, I thought it was like a leaving that chapter behind and this is this is this is his this is his joker now. This is mm. Nolan's joker. So we're leaving behind that past weapon and now mm. he's gonna be matured. He's gonna have close quarters weapons like small short knives and he's gonna have shotguns and he's gonna like yeah. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I know listeners never comment or write reviews or anything. Please tell us what you think it is. We have three very different ideas here. I think yeah. we're all right, but I just want to know what other people think it is as well because we are five minutes into this film. <laughs> like, if you haven't got past the opening scene, and we're all confused. <laughs> but I think um, <clears throat> just such an amazing performance by Heath. And of course. I love so much that he's just this chaos agent mm. who just appears from nowhere and he's just there excuse my French, to just fuck shit up, yeah. you know? Um, like, even when he gets, like, I forget the specifics, but, you know, he just gets that pile of money from the mobsters and just burns oh it. Don't worry, I'm just burning my half. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry. <laughs> what happened? Sorry, you right, ten, ten, ten time. Go away. <laughs> oh, you're outside. Outside. Oh, my God. Talk about chaotic freaking characters. Oh, my God. My cat just came inside with a huntsman in her mouth and oh like, came God. towards me. Oh, she, my God. She, she, was she like, you want to know how I got these scars? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You evil thing. Oh, my God. Got that by is... a cat. Go away. Don't... Oh, my God. That's a, real jo- that's a real joker move just to bring a spider she inside. Heard us. Yeah. Evil. Penny. <gasps> Oh my god! She's an agent of chaos. She's like, I'm just dropping it on my half. She's like, I just want to see what will happen. Yeah, Yeah, Mama will burn down the house. Okay. Oh Oh my god. (laughs) Oh, but yeah. Sorry, Nick. Back to you in a pile of money. You're right. (laughs) No, no, that's all right. Well, I was just, but I also love that 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 there's also like Harvey Two-Face is in this film mm. as well and, like, the arc, arc of that character. Is he back? Sorry. Yep. Yeah, let's, let's talk about... Let's talk about the new the new players because most pretty much everyone comes back except for, obviously, um, uh, Liam Neeson, I think Liam Neeson and, uh, and Katie Holmes are the ones who don't come back. But every other actor, mm-hmm. including Killian Murphy, we get a lovely scene with um, 
with Scarecrow up front, which was nice, something we hadn't seen in Batman films before because previously Batman just killed his villains in his movies or they just, you know, except for I think maybe Batman and Robin. Uh, Batman Forever Ridley goes insane, doesn't he? But, like, he just kind of kills his villains that don't come back. But this one we had Scarecrow return. Um, you have the wonderful I'm not wearing hockey pads line. Um, (laughs) But we get some new players. We get Eric Roberts, like Academy Award nominee, Eric Roberts playing Sal Moroni. I think he's one of the, like, there's so many big names in there. Every scene he's in, he steals. He's so good Mm. in it. Um, It's weird seeing Batman in a club, but it kind of became a trope after this movie. Just about every Batman film since has had him going through a club to get a bad guy. Um, In The Batman, he does it about half the movie. Um, You've got Aaron Eckhart as as Harvey Harvey Dent, um, who's wonderful, like really good. Um, mm, and, that's that's like perfect casting. Like he is a golden boy. Yeah, so good. Which when my makes, first... Go on, go. No, no, I was just gonna say like like he's the perfect casting for it to be so shocking when he's mm. when he turns. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely. He's so commanding. He's mm. so commanding of every scene he's in. Mm. Oh my gosh, yeah. And the whole like idea that people think that he's Batman, and then like then when he does like they do the thing, it's the girl like at the ballerina where he puts the paper over his face and he's like, could he be the Batman? I'm like, Aaron Eckhart could have been Batman. Like, what a great mm. casting choice, actually. He would have been great as Batman. Yeah. Um, and then Maggie Gyllenhaal taking over as Rachel Dawes, who is great in the film. Like I know before I said I preferred um, Katie Holmes, and I do, but she. She's got a lot of heavy lifting to do in this film because Rachel mm. is so, such a more prominent character in this movie, um, and she had to pick up, you know, after the first one had been done. I think she does a really good job in it. Mm. Um, mm. The flick is just set piece after set piece. Like you've got um, the party, you know, where the Joker shows up, you know, at the fundraiser, which is maybe one of the best entrances for the Joker ever. <laughs> It's, every, it's just every Heath Ledger scene when he goes into the mob's like secret meeting and does a magic trick and makes the pencil disappear. <laughs> um, here's my card. Like just the joke. Like, I, yeah, I feel like as well. Like when you you get the more you watch it as well, it's the things that I get a lot of entertainment for, and not like you know, like the the pencil disappearing thing is like a classic. That's like an all time classic moment. But there's like a bit when he goes into that party and he's just like. You must be Harvey Squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like and he's doing like, his hair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the licking where he licks his lips all the yeah. time. That, that I find perfect. It's so unnerving of this little quick like tick. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I really like um, after, we're going to talk about this scene, but after the flip, the truck flip, yeah. where he falls out of the truck and the way he like falls out and says "ow" and then like yeah. stumbles off and then <laughs> accidentally trips it like trips again and his machine yeah. gun goes off like i just think that that look, what two seconds of him falling out and being like "ow" like <laughs> "ow" dad like it, it's i just yeah i love those little extra sort of glimpses into him that you get where yeah, he mm. is still funny but he's terrifying yeah one of my favorite moments in that party scene is he snatches someone's champagne flute and then like he spills it all out before he yeah, yeah. Drink it. And I don't know whether that was deliberate or an accident, but either way, it's just such a great little moment. But I just feel like every line, like every, because he has so many gags in it and like they're so lame, pathetic gags, but just the delivery, you know, of his performance, but then also the way Nolan shoots it, it works. Like, 
you know, want to see a magic trick. Here's my card. Let's not blow things out of proportion. Like such <laughs> yeah. dumb jokes. Even to like when he's like, let her go. Really poor choice of words and drops her off. Like he's cracking jokes left and right. And they're actually like, they shouldn't be funny, but they work every single <laughs> yeah. time. Mm, and I remember for a while after it first came out, everybody was mimicking where he's in the um, jail cell and he does the clap with his yeah. chin down. Yeah. yeah. Everybody yeah. was mimicking that, like, yeah, that body language and that stuff. Yep. Um, Just perfect. <laughs> and you mentioned the truck uh, yeah. flip before. I feel like like leads me to one of the points I had about Nolan in general is like he is someone you can go see one of his movies and I feel like pretty much in every movie there's a moment where I am so flawed and I just think, there's not many people who can do something like this that pull mm. a certain thing off. Like you can insert whatever, you know, whether it's like, I know we're jumping the gun a bit here, but like, you know, in Oppenheimer, maybe it's like the bomb going off or mm. um, in Inception, it's like the crescendo of the timelines kind of working together. But here I'm just, it's like white knuckling the seat. It's just like, there's just not many people who can, who can do something like that. I'm there's always one, one um, sorry, go on. No, go, James. I was going to say, there's always one big practical moment, and you mentioned Inception, and for me, it's the tumbling corridor. Mm. Like, that's the one. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that a lot soon, but I just wanted to just drop that in. Sorry, Maddie, you go. Well, I was going to say, yeah, there's, um, yeah, always one practical effect where you just gasp at, like, mm. oh, I hope they really did that. And then knowing Nolan, you know that, nah, he really would have experimented and he would have figured mm. that out and he mm. would have, like, rented a space in the city and like done it mm. um i just i respect that so much and i find um i'm not i mean as a, a you know typical female there's really big long fight scenes which i lose interest in pretty easily or long car chases i'm just sort of like i'm a bit over long car chases but i'll tell you what the car chases in inception the car chases in batman the car chases in um um, tenant, like mm. they were all just so breaking the mold that I was not bored in any of those car chases, and so I think that's really commendable too. Well, for me, I would say the Dark Knight is hands down the best Batmobile chase we've got out of any Batman film. Like him chasing down the truck, and the truck's like he's you know slaughter is you know, is the, the best, best medicine. medicine, and yeah. like the time gets so damaged, he has to go into the into the bike, whatever it's called, the Bat Pod. Like, it's just so well executed. It's so thrilling. Like, you've got that really wonderful, like, ironic moment where they drive past a fire truck on fire, like, all that <laughs> sort of stuff that I was like, I don't need to see a bat- Batman chase anyone in a vehicle again. Like, I didn't care for, like, I didn't dislike the bat stuff in Dark Knight Rises, but it's like, ah, I'm, I've seen it. And then when Batman vs. Superman came out, I'm like, yeah, I've, I've seen it. Like, it's fine. You don't need to, less with the car, more with the Batman. Um, and it, again, it took until, like, Matt Reeves' one where I'm like, okay. I'm ready for a Batmobile chase again, but like it's just so perfectly done. Like, there's you just don't need to like. What more could you do? It's so well executed. Like, you've got the cops after Batman because they think he might be might be might be bad now as well. And you got joke. Yeah, it's just I can't even use proper words to express how good it is. It's just a perfect mm-hmm. shot. Um, it's so good. Anyway, sorry, I just wanted to say that. Um, where are you both at on the? kind of the ending of the film with the moral decision. I feel like that's maybe some people don't love that, you know, where the two boats have the 
um, The Bomb. You know, I feel like oh, it's a pretty perfect too. film. But if I ever hear, if I ever do hear criticism, it's a, about that that sort of ending. Which part? Sorry, you cut out for a second. With sorry, the, was that the one with the prison boat and then oh, the passenger oh, boat, the two ferries? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love the boat stuff. Um, for me, the the film falls apart at the very end where like Harvey Dent, like the whole Harvey Gordon Batman thing is where it kind of falls apart. For me, I'm just like, we could wrap things up. Like once the Joker's off screen, like I'm kind of like ready to wrap things up because he's the primary villain. Um, but I do like the whole, we have to hunt him. Like that's such a great ending. It's just cheapened by the fact they never did that in Dark Knight Rises. Like I really wanted Dark Knight Rises and like, we'll get into it. I wanted that film to pick up with like Batman on the rooftop, cops chasing him down. Like we have to hunt the Batman. But instead he just like took a vacation for eight years. Like so we'll talk about that film more later. But um, I think that film cheapened the end of Dark Knight for me a little bit. But I like, I really like the fairies. I actually think the fairies is a really wonderful sequence. I think it's, um, I think it was really needed. I feel like it was a clever idea because like the whole trope behind the Joker was that he's so terrifying because he he's not predictable, he doesn't have a plan, he doesn't fall under normal social human conventions and human norms, and that's why he thinks he's so powerful because he thinks he has a peg. So it was the best way to undercut him and say, mm. well, you know, you think you don't fall in this category, but also these people haven't fallen into that category either. Like it was it was more of a blow to him than it would be getting locked away or getting bashed mm. up by Batman. Like it was the the one way to, in quotation marks, beat the Joker is to prove him wrong. And mm. so I think that's why it was so important um, and really well done, especially when um, I've forgotten the actor's name. Um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Beautiful, bright eyes, sparkly, giant African-American man. Tiny, is it Tommy Lister? Is that... Used to be a wrestler, yeah, probably. And yeah, he gets up and he goes and gets the detonator and says, "I'll do what you should have done ten minutes ago." And then yes, throws the detonator. Yeah, out yeah. The I, think it's, like, I think it's Tommy Lister. Such I think a great it's a, moment. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Um, I will look it up while you guys keep talking. Yeah, I find. Yeah, I found that was really, really important because you can't, you can't really, like it. It doesn't affect the Joker if he gets shot or killed. Like, he, he doesn't care. He welcomes that. Like, it doesn't really matter if he gets locked up because he thinks, I'm going to get out of it anyway. Like, his biggest, biggest thing is, yeah, to be proven wrong about the, you know, the good in human nature. So I was it right. It was, it was Tommy yeah. Lister. I was right. Tommy I think he was, okay. was a boxer. Um, boxer, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, one thing that people say, but because like, there's always haters out there, so one thing people always say if they want to try and undercut the film is, yeah, but without Heath Ledger, like the film wouldn't be anything. Which I think is such a redundant like argument. It's like, yeah, but he isn't it. So, done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, like, do, do we have a favorite Heath Ledger Joker line or a favorite Heath Ledger Joker? Moment? Like, it's totally his film. I saw an interview with Christian Bale recently where he's like. We really want to make sure that Batman was the star of these films because he's the least interesting thing. Normally, so we really went out of our way to make him interesting, compelling, which we nailed with begins. It's like, and then Heath Ledger walked on the set and like just blew us away every time. I was like, damn it. Well, I guess he's going to be the most interesting part of this movie. So, do you guys have a favorite Heath Ledger Joker moment or or, or quote? I've got two. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I do adore just most things that he says, but I I really love when he falls out of the truck after it's been flipped yeah. and he goes, ow. Yeah. And then, yeah, like I really, really like yeah. that bit. 
And then the second one is he doesn't say anything, but it's the shot. And I think it was used a few times in promos and other stuff where he's, um, I think he might've just busted out of jail, but he's in the cop car and his head's hanging. Yes. Yes. And he's just like, he's feeling sort of this breeze, but you can see that he's, he's not relishing his freedom. You can see that he's, the cogs are ticking about what he's going to do next. And he's enjoying playing it out in his mind about what's coming next. And there's that no moment dialogue is... and everything. I just and the cars sort of like that mm. weird swerve that's yeah making you feel uneasy and you know it shows you that there's more like instability coming and that shot loved it. That moment's so iconic that even like the Joker movie that came out with Joaquin Phoenix like kind of homage that like there's a moment where he's in a cop car and he's putting his head out the window and stuff like that so. Um, absolutely. Nick, what about you? Uh, I've got a really soft spot for the aggressive expansion gag with the pool yeah. cue. Yeah, yes. That's pretty We're brutal. We're having tryouts. Yeah. Having tryouts. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty happy. brutal there. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, love I feel like as well, that iconic shot of Heath with his head out of the window is also, I don't know if it's the first, but it's maybe like the first one I can remember of. There's a real iconic a like thing that Nolan does and it's like a mounted camera on like a vehicle or something like that. And it's in a lot of movies after that, that he does like it's on um, the truck that McConaughey is driving in interstellar. Mm. Um, I, I think it's in tenant. It's like just, it's a real like trope kind of thing. Yeah. Mm, the leg shot and he does the leg shot and then he does, yeah. The extra mirror side. Yeah. Mm. The extra side mirror. Yeah. Um, I agree with, with both of you and Maddie, you're right. Just every time he's on screen, it's great. But one that I, I never hear people talk about is the cell phone footage where he's like, just, he's like got the the guy dressed up as uh, Batman. It's like, you're not, then why do you look like him? And then, yeah. like, <laughs> but then he does this really like growly, like scary voice. And it's like, maybe the most terrifying is in the film. I was like, oh my God. That is, that is, that is really unsettling that, yeah. that footage. Um, We've been talking about The Dark Knight a lot. We could easily do a whole episode on The Dark Knight, but we probably should move on unless anyone has anything else they want to add about this perfect, perfect movie. I'm checking it's not bad. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um. We're just going to wait for Maddie to check her notes. I'm checking my notes. Oh, I, in my notes, the only thing we didn't touch on is Morgan Freeman's um, extra nod again where he's like, how will my suit hold up against dogs? I'm and he's so like, oh. good. <laughs> But it will against cats, and you're like, cat, cat. Is there a cat coming? Yeah. And people didn't pick up on that because I remember after I saw that, I was like, oh, so cat won't be the next one. And I remember, I remember we came out of that that movie theater, Tina and I, in 2008, and I said to him, like, I think they're gonna do Catwoman next. Well, they made that line. They should cast Anne Hathaway. She's great. And then like four years, later, I was like, oh my god, I was right. <laughs> like, you're right. <laughs> I was really happy with that. Um, Alrighty, so after The Dark Knight, he brings out, I said before, a film that really, you know, changed cinema forever. Like, you know, that's Inception. The most confusing film he'd made to date until maybe Tenet. <laughs> um, yeah. I rewatched Inception recently, and I'll be honest, I still really struggle with a lot of it. Um, I don't think it's an overly complex film. I just think I was very tired. Um, it's his first... Is it his only collaboration with Leo? Nick, you're a big Leonardo DiCaprio fan. You'll be able to confirm that. Yeah, Leo hasn't uh, done yes. anything yet. Yeah. yeah, I think so. We get Leonardo DiCaprio, his first but not last Joey, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt appearance, first but not last with Marion Cotillard. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Caine returns. Tom Hardy. A lot of the Inception mm-hmm. cast actually jumps over to Dark Knight Rises, don't uh, they? Elliot Page hasn't been in any other ones. Mm. Yeah. Um, and Elliot Page. Yeah. I'm trying to think who else. This, I feel like there's someone else. Is it Ken Watanabe? Is he? He's been in one other. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's been in another one of his. I just can't remember which one it was. Um, mm. Also, the chemist guy who mixes up uh, the sleep stuff. I, mm. I think he's – was he in Tenet as well? I don't, I don't know, know, actually. Ooh. Maybe. Potentially. But. but there's a lot of – yeah, a lot of repeats. Yeah. Cillian Murphy again. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Cillian Murphy. Yeah, that's right because he plays the guy, yeah. Um, mm. Dreams within dreams within dreams. What that's what this film is. <laughs> like, this was, well, this was yeah. Nolan, Fe- I think, Nolan Fever for me. Mm. I was like – I was just ready. My brain was ready to absorb what he had to tell me. Mm. I was um, writing down and thinking about like how, yeah, like he he likes to play with time and how he presents it, and um, yeah, like this is the different way instead of doing you know time forward and backwards or part A part B or you know in reverse or whatever. This is up and down. Like mm. yeah, he's like, how else do I need to do it? Okay, I'm going to go up and down. So like yeah, the layers going down and down and down into the subconscious. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. I, 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 like, oh, we lost you again, Nick. I'm so sorry, like, mate. Breathtaking. I, oh, can you, what about now? Am I, am I back? Yep, yeah, you're back. you're back. Okay, okay. Um, I must be a long way from the modem. <laughs> <laughs> do, you have um, your, do you have your totem? Maybe you're not actually in reality and that's why we well, that's true. Actually, it's been spinning for the last the 45 yeah. minutes. Sick reference. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we are nerds. <laughs> what? This is the first I'm hearing of it. Um, no, I, was, I don't know how much, how much you got of my last sentence, but I was just saying how breathtaking I found um, just that, like, the three layers all operating on a different time mm. um, and then how it all had to be, ta- uh, like, how it had to be, like, um, orchestrated so certain things would happen at a certain time. I was just, back in 2011, I was all in for those kinds of sci-fi concepts. Mm. Me too. I loved the time dilation. I was so excited. That was one thing that I was like, no, nah, I don't need that explained. I've got that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. This is very much high concept sci-fi. And this, again, like we talked about it, like this kind of changing cinema, like this is maybe the most ambitious science fiction film at a, of its time. I'm trying to think of anything before that was as ambitious as this. Visually, it's the most ambitious of his films at, up, to the, up to this point. Um, I'm just trying to think, like, if there's any other science fiction films I've seen pr- prior to Inception that was as ambitious, as high concept as this, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. It just was so different and like all they had to do well blade runner was trying sure yeah i was thinking about blade i I immediately jumped to blade runner 2049 i'm like oh that came out way later um but yeah yeah, i guess the original blade runner as well is quite high concept um i'm I'm sure like ones that dealt with like time and stuff as well and like oh like the matrix i guess the matrix is pretty high concept you know what like let's do credit where credit's true um but all they need to do in the trailer was like hey we're folding a city in half and like yeah. that was that was all the posters, just the city on its side, and you're like, all right, like I don't know yeah. what it is, but I'm in. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was going to let you guys like talk. Him. This is what this is one of my weaker ones, if I'm honest. But I, I mean, I like it. I just yeah, it's one that I. I it's it's one not. It's definitely not one of my favorites, but I think um, an aspect that 
allowed me to still in like enjoy the film is obviously the high concept mm. um you know manipulation of time and space and etc um but also it has a little bit of um little bit of shades of um the italian job because they're pulling a heist mm. sort of thing and i mm. i do like a heist film because you've got to have all those pieces of clockwork working together um and it's always high stakes to pull it off and um so it did have, yeah, that little, yeah, little bit of shading of sort of the Italian job or I guess, um, you know, Ocean's Eleven. And, mm. yeah, I like the heist style um, to a film. But it was, yeah, um, and definitely really lower ha- on my list. Yeah. A really heartbreaking film as well because a lot of – the one thing that Nolan does get accused of, and I've done it myself in the past as well, is that he doesn't show a lot of emotion in his films. They're very kind of stoic and, like, detached – um, and we're going to get into Stella, which proves that wrong completely. But like the whole story about um, Leonardo DiCaprio and his wife and how she's just she's lost her mind. Like she can't. She just thinks she's like she can't understand that she's in reality. She thinks she's still in the dream and ends up committing suicide. I'd forgotten about that aspect. And watching it, I was like, I was aghast. I completely forgot about that part of the film. I was just like, oh my god! Like the emotional stuff started way earlier than Interstellar. I thought it was like Interstellar was kind of the beginning of that, but like. It's a tough watch and like, you know, they don't they take a while to build to it. He keeps saying how he can't go home, he can't say his kids. And maybe the flick affects me differently now that I'm a parent as well. I mentioned that on every episode also that I'm a parent. Um, but like I was just like, oh my god, this is so much darker and deeper than I thought Inception was. And it's a pretty deep and dark film to begin with. I feel like he often explores um the um relationship of a father or a husband mm. in a lot of his films. Um the that part of their identity being a husband or a father is a massive driving force for mm. most of his protagonists. Um, yeah, for sure. So I like I find you know you write what you know. So I guess you know he's a father and like that relationship and style to him must be really important or really complex for him because they, they that seems to pop up a lot in his films. Can you imagine um, like being Christopher Nolan's kid, being like, "Can you make like I just like, can you make more Batman films, please?" Like, can you just? <laughs> well, The Dark Knight, no, I, um, because he was hiding, because he, you know he hides the working titles of all his films. The Dark Knight was actually titled Rory's First Kiss until it got released, <laughs> and that's his son's name, Rory. Oh, that's so funny! Like, <laughs> I'm like, that's interesting. Like, he's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if you're his his kid, you'd be like, "Oh, Dad." Can you make me breakfast? And he's like, "Well, I've hidden it somewhere in the house. You've yeah. got to work out these series of clues." <laughs> I can't say if I made it made it this morning or if I made it in the future. So you have to follow those clues <laughs> and track the timeline. Yeah, that's right. But also, is this real? Are you awake? <laughs> are you dreaming? <laughs> and yeah. the clues are in binary and Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where do you both stand on the ending? Um, is he dreaming or is he awake? Hundred percent awake. Yeah, I agree. I'm locked into awake for multiple scientific theories. Yep. <laughs> I don't have any theories to back it up, but I just feel like I feel like Leo needed a win. Like I, I feel like, <laughs> and I don't think Nolan's a punishing director. Like you know, some some directors will punish their characters, but I feel like Nolan, like you know, dark, you know, the Batman trilogy. Like Bruce Wayne gets a happy ending. Spoilers, you know, like Interstellar. There's a happy ending. Like all of these films. Are quite grueling for their for the protagonist, but they all get a happy ending. So I have to think the cop gets a, a happy ending as well. Mm, mm. I agree. The protagonists generally go through some sort of great cost to themselves, but then there's always balance. So the balance has to be if there's been some great cost to the protagonist, the ending has mm. to be some sort of win. Yeah. 
So not science, but film theory tells me that. Oh no, my science done. theory is that the. Oh um, no, I'm saying no. I don't have science, no. but I do have film theory. <laughs> like, that's what well, I'm yeah, okay. The top, the top wobbles, and the only way centrifugal force will start to wobble is if it's slowing down. So like, yeah. it's just sorry. Like that's just mm. the way it works. Mm. <laughs> what if he? What if he dreamed that it wobbled? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nah. <laughs> That's not how it works. That's not how it works, guys. Nah. <laughs> um, do you have any other thoughts on Inception? Nick, we kind of steamrolled you, and neither of us had much to say about it, to be honest. We just kind of talked about how we no, were our favourite. <laughs> no, no, you covered most of what I what I would have said, but this was when I was when I was a younger person and I put a lot of pride in ranking films, you know, and I'd tell anyone who listened what my top five films were. This this sat at the top of that list for, for many years. Um, I remember when we did Past the Remotives in your top five. I think this and Interstellar were in your top five. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, love it so much. I love the location hopping. Like, I think that's mm. something that maybe is under underrated a part of, as a part of like what he what he does is like being able to capture these like amazing locations. And this is like such a good example of that. Like, they're in. Um, a, forget where they are like is it like morocco or somewhere like that when yeah um they're doing part of the heist and yeah it's um the snow i was gonna say i'd forgotten about the snowy the snowy section and that was just yeah that's a refreshing gorgeous change of pace for the film yeah yeah but i don't know there's something very affecting about the the message they were implanting in killian murphy's brain where it's like i don't know why because it's like they're just manipulating this guy to break up his empire but I found it really emotional when they're saying he's like they trying to implant that your dad wasn't upset that you weren't like him. Mm. It was he was upset that you were trying or something like yeah. trying to be, and I was like, oh, it's a tear. Yeah, the, that's a good point actually, for sure. Um, alrighty, let's talk about the bat one more time. After uh, Inception, we get Dark Knight Rises. Have we lost you, Nick? Are you still there? He seems very frozen. Oh yeah. no! There he is. He's back. I can hear. I can. I can hear. I must have just. Uh, yeah. I'm just sitting very still. Yeah. <laughs> so Dark Knight Rises comes out 2012. It comes out a couple of months after uh, the very first Avengers film. Um, so Marvel has finally there has finally been building universe hitting their stride. DC is still not doing anything. Only doing Batman films. Dark Knight Rises, I would say, is the hotly anticipated film of the year and probably of the decade at this point. Like, nothing else is kind of... The, the fever created by Dark Knight, like, nothing came close to it. So Dark Knight... And, the, and the, I don't think we see it again until Infinity War and Endgame. I think, like, that's the longest anticipation. Um, just like with Dark Knight, unfortunately, the film is marred by tragedy. There's a, there's a shooting uh, in a screen of Dark Knight Rises, which affects the performance of the film uh, and obviously horrible as well. But this is Nolan's swan song. It's his last Batman film. I think we all had really, really high hopes. Bane was announced as a villain, which was, I think, surprising for a lot of people because he's not usually, a, a, you know, a kind of A-list antagonist. And he's also quite silly. Um, you know, he uses Venom to pump himself up and stuff like that. So um, I think people were a little bit surprised that he was going out with such a big villain. And the trailers made it look like a Superman-level type uh, villain where... You know, stadiums were being blown up and Gotham was falling to pieces and how can one man in a bat suit save it? Um, but it came out and they explained it all. So how do we feel about Dark Knight Rises? I was really I was really happy with the multiple layers and sort of different um, uh, subjective characters. So I like that we got 
definitely more from Christian Bale, but we got to see more of like Alfred's emotions and we got to see more of um um Catwoman, what's her name? Um, Selena Kyle. Selena Kyle. Like we got mm-hmm. to see a bit more about Selena Kyle's motivations and mm-hmm. the pressures that she was under and a bit more character development for her, um, you know, changing from being out for herself because the world's not, never going to help her or give her a leg mm. up to suddenly, yeah, having a bit of a change in heart. And um, I I thought that was really, really good. And I loved that we got to see the inner turmoil of Commissioner Gordon still really mm. struggling with the choices that he had made and the flow and effects of those choices. And that's why he was just so entrenched in making sure to make it as right as he could. Um, Mm. I really, really appreciated that we got like more from multiple, multiple characters and like even um, Lucius Fox. So Morgan Freeman, Mm -hmm. we got to see more of him making a stand for his morals. Um, I liked that. Um, we got closure, but it was really a nice, neat little package because of all of the characters that got their say and got their own closure. Sure, 100%. Yeah. What about you, Nick? How was your initial reaction to the film and what are the things that you dug about it? If you do, I actually don't even know if you like Dark Knight Rises. I assume you do, but we've never really talked about it. Yeah, no, I, I look, I, um, I've kind of like come full circle on it where like – I was just so I bought into the hype so much and then mm. I was probably a little underwhelmed and then I've kind of come all the way back around to where I think it's pretty underrated. I think it's quite often written off as a lot weaker. I mean, it's unlucky. How, how do you follow the Dark Knight? So um, Batman, Batman Begins did have it easy. It came first. So yeah, like, exactly. It was the building uh, blocks to Dark Knight. So, yeah, it doesn't get punched yeah. the same way. Um, but, no, I think there's a lot to enjoy in there and, um, you know, I really love that there's been a significant passage of time. Like I love that he's a sort of, um, uh, what would you say? Like he kind of like is hidden away from society and he's like mm. kind of, I love how tactile it feels. Like it's not that there are consequences to living your life this way. You know, if you're going to go out and fight crime, it's not, he's not a superhero, you mm. know, like, like that's going to do damage to your body and he can like needs a walking Actually, I don't, does he need the walking stick or is that part of his act? I don't know. He looks like he does. No, he does because he has to put he has to put the strap, the magic leg strap on to fix him. Mm. Like, which apparently that's all he needs to do. Like, that was one of like there. The thing with the film for me is that like there are just things they put in there, and it seems like it's just there to be. They like the leg strap thing. It's like okay, so it helps him kick bricks, but he could have just like had it to walk normally. He didn't need a cane. Like, yeah, but just... like I've had, I've done injuries. If I like broke my arm and then put a device on that straightened my broken arm and it still hurt. You know, I don't really understand that machine. Yeah. I mean, look, he believes that he, he believes that he deserves his pain. So he's not about mm. to go out and fix his pain when he's in that state. That's fair. That's fair. Obviously I'm showing my cards a little bit early. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, I like, I love Bane. I I don't don't think there's been many menacing villains um in in any film like that <laughs> that bit when he just like puts his hand on the guy's shoulder and he's like do you because no is it um is it ben mendelson yeah and and he's like i'm in control here and bane just comes and like puts his hand on his collar and he's like do you feel in control yeah 
Oh, so and menacing. He's, he's looking up at this towering figure, like, I've yeah. paid you. And you're like, yeah, well, like, good luck with that. Yeah. Bane is, look, Bane is one of the best parts of the film for me. Like, we needed some good fights. I know before, Maddie, you're like, I don't really care about the fighting. Dark Knight, like, the Joker <laughs> is not a, a fighting character. Like, he's, you know, he's a, he's a planner. He, well, I mean, he says he's not a planner, but he's a planner. Like, he's very much a psychological antagonist. So, we haven't really seen Batman fight too much. So we really needed someone who could hold his own against Batman. So Bane was perfect for that. Like the first time they fight in the sewer and like Bane absolutely wrecks him is insane. But then when they're fighting out in the daytime in the snow and like Bane goes full berserker on him, like it's such a great like visceral moment in the film. Um, I think Selena Kyle is highly underrated in the flick. She There's more she could be doing. But my favorite two moments in the film, I think are both hers. The first is when she's jumping out of the window and she's like, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was meant to be uncrackable. Like that's a really good Selena Kyle moment. And then later when she's with the DA or whatever, like the government official in the bar and she's like blackmailing them, the cops come in, she screams in terror. She yeah. to, And then like immediately just changes. Um, and mm. full credit to, to Hans Zimmer because her theme, just that little like harpsichord or whatever it is that just adds a bit of mystique to her is like pitch perfect. Yeah, a little spring in her step. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's she's great. And I w- actually would have liked a lot more of her. I think, uh, one thing I could say is there's maybe a few too many villains in this film. Like, I know the twist was Talia, but Talia doesn't do all that much in this flick, really. Like, um, She has the worst death scene. acting for a death scene I've ever seen. <laughs> I have finished my father's work. Um, yeah. That was the I thought it was thing. really unsatisfying how Bane just gets shot into a wall and he's done. Like, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I agree with that. I, yeah. I thought that in the past. It's just sort of like, it's really just sort of like, oh, is that is that done now? Yeah. So I know that like, every time um, I've seen this film, I think a few times with my husband, but I think the first few times I saw it was with my brother and my brother had already seen it and he has this gag and I I'm sorry if it ruins it for you guys, but every time that bit happens where he gets shot and flies off into the wall, my brother knows the timing and he sneezes, so he goes, achoo, and then <laughs> and he's like, Dan, like, that's all that happens. It's if you just sneeze and that's it, he's out. It's no, of, do, you, do you know what yeah. ruined the flick for me was the spelling error uh, in the newspaper where Heist spelled incorrectly. Um, oh. And then in the rooftop fight where a goon, like just like an unarmed goon, throws himself away, like he doesn't get hit by him, he just falls down. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever seen it, but the next time you're watching it, like when Batman and Catwoman are on the roof running away from Bane, um, there's like all these guys, they're fighting, and one guy just on the left of the screen just goes, whoa, and tumbles over, but there's no one near him, like within six Maybe feet of him. he's really clumsy, okay? <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Yeah, James, yeah. he's probably got an inner ear thing or something like that. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think one thing that hurts the flick a little bit, and... I do, I do really enjoy it. Like I am being a little bit harsh on it, but I just, I, but after the Dark Knight, I just wanted something so more, and I just feel like it set up this perfect idea of Batman being hunted by Gotham, like being kind of, you know, martyred almost. And instead, we didn't see any of that. We just jumped to him being retired. We don't see Batman for forty-five minutes in this film. It's a, th- it's a two, it's almost three hours long, and Batman takes forty-five minutes to show up. I know you want to introduce your, your villain, but I'm just like, come on, man! Like we need to. See, look, the best thing about Dark Knight is the like Batman shows up like within like twenty minutes. Like he's already Batman. He's doing Batman stuff. Like he's been Batman for two movies and he took eight years off. Um, one of my 
favourite things about that film um, is actually Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Every scene that he's in, the dialogue that he has, the plot line for him, the motivation for him, the way he puts on an accent, the way he carries himself, I don't know what it is, but I I just I adore every moment on screen with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that film. Well, I, I hope you do because that's the only reason he took eight years off was to let Joseph Gordon-Levitt be old enough to be Batman psychic. Like <laughs> that's exactly the reason that eight-year gap is there. Had to wait for the acne to clear up. <laughs> um, I'm jumping ahead, but how do you guys feel about the the Joseph Gordon-Levitt twist at the end of the film? That's my one of my favourite scenes in that film. That his name is Robin. Right at the end, where he says, "Oh, maybe use my legal name, try Robin," and I was like, <gasps> loved it. Yeah, I kind of feel like, considering nothing's happened from that. It's like I find it frustrating because I'm mm. like, it was such a cool reveal. And I'm like, does that mean we're getting a film, a spin off? Yeah. Uh, but we obviously haven't. Yeah, I didn't like it. It's also like, um, actually, in The Dark Knight, there's one thing I don't like as well, where it's an Easter egg, but the Riddler is meant to be in The Dark Knight. The guy who's oh. blackmailing, so the guy who's blackmailing Bruce Wayne, who's like figured out R&D, the guy's like, I want. One oh, the accountant guy. Because yeah. his, his name is Mr. Rees. Mr. Rees. Oh, it is, yeah. So he's oh. meant to be the – I heard that he's meant to be the Riddler, and I was like, ah, don't do that. Just call him Edward. Like, just, just – like, why don't do these funny word games? So Edward did, yeah. Enigma. Yeah. Well, Edward Nashton is his real name. Um, I guess, you know, the audiences wouldn't know who that was, and that's fine. But um, those are the two things. Those are the two things that frustrate me the most in these films is Mr. Rees and, and Robin. Quote unquote, I Robin. loved that it was revealed right at the end that it was Robin. I um yeah, I didn't. <laughs> this is the most negative I'm gonna be about the Nolan films. And like they're such small parts, like they're not not a big deal. Um I'm trying to think. Well, well we haven't really talked about the flick. There's so many great set pieces. There's, there's some really great action set pieces. Obviously the plane what? blowing up at the start. Sorry, Nick, you cut for a second. I mean that that's spectacular. No, no, no. I was just going to say um, I'm a big fan of the Afghan jail sequence. Yes. When he's in the pit. Yes. Yeah. So good. The broken back. Yeah. And he just like gets healed by like hanging, <laughs> hanging yeah. there for a few days. <laughs> like a salami. <laughs> um, I think that comes back to, me. I think that comes back to Maddie's thing about how he feels he needs to suffer through his pain. Because, like, they give him, like, a good old back crack and he's ready to go. But for the most mm. part, he's just hanging there, feeling his pain for a few days. I don't think it's a few days. I think it's months. Because yeah, the, that's true. Because the fusion bomb takes five months to go off. And by the time he gets back, it's got, like, what did he say, 12 days or something. I think he's that's hanging true, up yeah. there for a couple of months, guys. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the time is a bit hard to follow in this film. I, like, Nolan's very good with his time normally. But this one, the time is a bit blurry. Like, they do say it mm. a few times. But does, there's so much happening in the flick, you, do, you can miss it. Um, yeah. And sorry, sorry, Nick, I didn't mean to cut you off though. You were saying um, you talking about the prison sequence itself. No, no, I just, I'm just a big fan of that sequence, mm. and like I do find, um, I don't know if it's, uh, I'll pivot to one of the questions um, which you asked before. Yeah, like, I asked a few. A I asked a few questions. Like yeah. The most most anxiety or. Or, or or most nervous 
and I thought I'd give some love. Like, there's so many good scenes in his um, back catalogue, but I'll give some love to, like, I am all in on that scene when he's escaping and he realises that, like, you can't have the safety of the rope. Mm. So he, like, that's what holds you back. Um, mm. And I think that's just a cool, like, kind of metaphor anyway. But, like, that se- that I'm going to give a shout-out to that scene is, like, the one that's, like, maybe the most nervous for because he, like, takes the rope off and then makes the jump. It's, like, mm. spectacular. Yeah, My I agree. Most... That one made me nervous too. Mm. Yeah, I think I have something more more anxious in a, in a film we're going to talk about later. But I will give a special shout out to the the boat scene in the Dark Knight. That's one that I was very anxious during. The whole like, will they? Won't they? Who's going to blow each other up? Like, because the citizens of Gotham are not nice about it in that movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, excellent. This is, so there are some really great um, action set pieces. Obviously, the plane blowing at the start is fantastic. But I want to give a special mention just the whole um, the Wall Street heist where, like, he goes in with the motorcycle helmet, beats the guy in the face, yeah. and then they're, they're on the run on the, on the motorcycle. That's such a great, like, chase sequence. I mean, again, it's no Batmobile in Dark Knight, but it's pretty damn good. Mm, with the hostages hanging onto the back as little yeah. shields. Yeah, <laughs> clever. <laughs> um, and you said you wanted to talk about Alfred. Obviously, this is, this is the saddest Alfred, and Alfred gets treated pretty unfairly in this flick by Bruce. Um, rightfully so, like Bruce has to push him away to keep him safe. And what is Alfred going to do in the fight against Bane? Um, for reference, every time that um, Alfred has come up against Bane in the comics or other media, he has been killed. So Bane killed him in the comics um, about five years ago, and in I think it was Arkham City or one of the Arkham games, um, Bane almost killed Alfred as well. He like beat him up pretty badly. So probably good of Nolan to take Alfred out of the equation there. In those two scenes, in that goodbye scene and in the scene where he thinks he's buried Bruce Wayne, Oof, oh, yeah. I bawled. I bawled. I bawled my eyes out. It that was destroyed me the first time I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. It's just. I failed you. Oh. Yeah. 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 That's, that's why you get um, Michael Caine in, you know, for those moments where he can do so much with, like, not a lot of, not a lot of screen time. Mm. Um, so good. Mm. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else about Dark Knight Rises that's pressing on my mind. Uh, I think we've covered, covered most of it. But well, there's, there's go, the go, final go. scene, the the nod, which has become like one of the great memes of the internet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the nod at the, ta- at the cafe tables. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I did like that, but I, I do like to think that he's not done as Batman. Like I know that the trilogy is over, but I like to think that like, oh, no, just like in the comics, him and Selina are teaming up doing stuff elsewhere. Like, I like to think that like... I would love, like, if they did, like, a years later sequel, which they won't. It's just, like, the teaser trailer is, like, Sights of the Bat in, like, Europe or something like that. And it's just, like, this paper trail of, like, well, it can't be the Batman. The Batman died, so who's this Bat-like figure? That's the that's, In my mind, that's how that story continues. I don't think he's done. He's just done with Gotham. And how do you feel about um, Commissioner Gordon in Dark Knight Rises? He gets taken off the table. You know, he doesn't get to do a lot for a long time. He's in a hospital bed a lot, but he does, you know, he's, you know, he's leading the resistance. I just remember something I want to talk about. So I'm glad you asked that question. So I do like him in it. I just wish we had have got more of him. It feels like a lot of our main players were taken out of the film, like Batman's taken out of action for a big part of the film. Gordon's taken out of action for a big part of the film. Alfred's taken out of action. And they kind of like got these new characters doing more. Like Matthew Modine's great, but like he doesn't really bring much to the film. Uh, and that's not his fault. His character doesn't have much to do for the moment. He's just, other than replace Gordon, make Gordon look like a jerk. Like, that's about all he's got going for him. Mm. Um, yeah, how do you feel about Gordon in the film? Like, 
I I was happy that he stayed the course. I think mm. we needed him to stay the course in terms of staying faithful to Batman, mm-hmm. um, staying positive in Gotham City, that they will do the right thing. Um, I like that he calls um, calls them out straight away and he's like, Bane's not going to give the detonator mm. to just some random person. Like, no way. Like, I like that mm. he follows his gut instincts and he's got that insight in the, yeah, the leading the resistance and he's still got, you know, other external cops and detectives on the outside helping mm. them and I think he played a, a pivotal role in that point but yeah it did feel really small yeah mm. um the bit that I remembered was um they bring back Killian Murphy one more time to play to be the judge oh, um, yes. when they're sentencing the citizens of Gotham to walk across the ice death um, or exile yeah, yeah. Death or exile, isn't death it? by exile yeah <laughs> um which leads to a really wonderful Batman moment where Gordon and the cops are walking across the ice and then you just see the bat signal signal like light up um on the on the bridge or whatever. It's so fantastic. Um that is it's cool. a great it's it I is a really like good the, film. It's 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 not a great film for the police, like I think yeah. like getting trapped, a whole <laughs> underground. police force getting trapped underground mm. for like however long is like pretty embarrassing, you know, how yeah. you yourself. Gotham and by the PD, way, and then, Bat- you know. and then Batman left. I'm sure Gotham citizens were like, oh, so the people who sworn to protect us can't even save themselves. And the one guy who could do it is gone. Like, yeah. Well, he, they think he died, I suppose. So that's all right. Mm. Um, excellent. It is a really great flick. It just fo- happens to follow two really, really good flicks. Um, and it's very ambitious. And I think this might be the one time where the ambition, maybe he tried to do more than he could. Like, for me, I'm not saying it. It's certainly not a failure. It's, a flick. it's wonderful. But I think he maybe put too much on the table for this one. I almost wonder if he would have been better served, like, and I know this isn't how the studio system works. Like, you're not, like, they're going to strike. Well, I wonder if, like, would have been better if it came, like, five or six years later, you know, like, mm-hmm. have a bit of a break. Because, like, the first two were, were pretty close together. Mm-hmm. Um go do some other stuff and come back with some fresh ideas, you know? Maybe I, uh, it was just a bit too close to The Dark Knight and suffered in comparison. Well, I think the other thing is that, uh, and one thing that really hurt it, is that the original script or the original story idea um, had the Joker heavily involved. And then obviously with Heath Ledger's passing, they were like, well, we, we could recast, but we're not going to. We're going to do something different. Because I believe, like, I think the Bane was the antagonist. But the idea was, like, on top of that, the Joker is, like, really making things difficult for Batman amongst all of this, which I think would be very interesting. But sadly, um, it couldn't be done, of course. Um, I just complained about too many villains. I'm like, yeah, but put the Joker in as well. (laughs) I'm a hypocrite. All right. What what if they put Jared Leto in as the Joker? What would you say then? I am. Um, I'm not a Jared Leto hater. I, uh, I, you know, I think he does his own. T- it wouldn't suit the tone of those films, so I'd say no. Simply because it's the, the like, it's just not what that those films are going for. But I think he's a good Joker. Like everyone's got their own mark. It's a very positive show. Um, let's jump into what I think is the absolute shining star of his filmography, and that is Interstellar. 2014's Interstellar. He only waited two years to to get this one done. I just watched it again this week because I've only seen it once before and I really want to be fresh for it. Holy Christ. Best space film ever, I would say. Yes. It's um, pretty yeah, much I, one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah, yeah. me. it would probably be around number one. Yeah. It <laughs> takes, and you know, maybe controversial, I think it takes everything Kubrick tried to do with 2001 and 
executes it in a far better way. Like I respect 2001 for what it is. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but I think Interstellar like takes that and runs with it and does so much more. Um, and, and goddamn Murph. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Like this film, uh, the first time I saw it, it broke me. I didn't cry as much this time um, when I watched it, but I did definitely cry at the end, um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Thoughts on Interstellar? When did we first watch it? How were we affected? Was something you just, like, obviously you're very steeped in Nolan at this point, Nick. So were you just like, I'm ready for the next Nolan project? Like, how was Interstellar? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, he was my guy. I mean, mm-hmm. still is, but like, particularly back then, I was like, anything, I, th- I, I think I went and saw this gold class because it was an event. Um, and yeah, it lived up to everything I wanted it to be. Um, it's just spectacular. Like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive sci fi fan. Um, so anything where they're launching people into wormhole, into black holes, is like fine by me. Mm. Um, I just love, I just, like, there's such massive ideas, massive concepts, and it's a big film, like the scale of it, but juxtaposed with like a dad who just wants to save his, fa- his kids and his family. Mm. And, you know, what I mean by that is like how you can have, um, in one scene, they're landing on this planet who the waves are so massive they're confused with mountains. Mm. That's an OG. Fucking, that's the, he's the goat. <laughs> that's such a cool scene. Um, and then he, it's, again, we've, it's Nolan, so there's a time dilation effect, and he, it's been a couple of hours on that planet, and he gets back up into the spaceship where it's been years, and then so you go from something so massive to a guy who just comes back in and then has to sit through years worth of video messages from his kids and they've grown older into adults and you just see the look on his face, which is fantastic acting from Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. And that, that is just the best of Noel. And that's why I think he's, yeah, he's the goat. There's only one, you know, like there's stuff that only he can do. And it's bringing that level of emotion to such a big film. I think that, um, so Maddie's question about the most anxious moment in Nolan film, they're equally tied for the water planet and the ice planet. Like when he's when you and like you know Zimmer's score is genius. Just the idea to have a ticking clock be embedded into the mm. score of that. So like you know they've got to get off that planet as soon as possible. They've got to do it quickly, and like they stuff up and they lose time. Like I was so anxious the entire time the first time I saw it, and then the second, then when they go to that ice planet and meet Doctor Man, um, and he's not who he seems to be at all. And like you like you know they start fighting and he cracks the the helmet and like I was just like. Oh my god! Like, and you know, the first time seeing that, I was like, I don't know when this film's going to end. Like, I don't know what to expect. Is it all going to like? You just never know what to expect with Nolan. Like, what's going to happen here? Like, those two equally anxiety-driven moments for me. So those are my, you know, that's my answer for you, Maddie. Those two moments there. Mm, I completely <laughs> agree with you. I think the only one I'd add onto that is I was also feeling really anxious in the um, cornfield chase right at the beginning just because I've been conditioned to think that if there's a field of corn in any film like we're going to get like murdered or an alien's going to jump out or like so anytime we're in a cornfield I'm like oh no like so I was feeling science children of the corn those are my two (laughs) go-tos exactly anytime there's a cornfield I'm like oh fuck we're screwed like (laughs) but yeah I totally agree that like this the drive of this film the drive of everyone's motivations in this film is love and like Mm. that's so different it's not desperation it's not justice it's not revenge like it's love like love is driving 
everything mm. and it's this unstoppable force. And so we're dipping into so many scientific scientific principles about forces and, you know, like Newton's third law and gravity and but like the the overy overtying theme is like love is what's mm. driving decisions, choices, regrets, motivations. And I think that was just glorious. And yeah, the, the relationship between him and his kids um mm-hmm. is just so real and visceral and fascinating and like like the fact that Murph still wears his jacket and stuff. Mm. The first time I noticed that she still wears his jacket mm. once he's gone, um, like that's a really personal memory for me because, like, I still have a jumper of my grandfather's and I'll mm. wear that every now and again and it still smells like his old garage with car oil and, mm. like, old, you know, burnt bits of wood and stuff. And so, like, wearing somebody else's item of clothing is just so personal to me that I just adored that little that little like Easter egg and um, yeah, you're right. The score and mm. the the visuals and the pace um, and the way they explain the scientific concepts, um, they, they hold your hand and they take you through them slowly so that you're really understanding that the, when things go wrong, sure, it seems like on one layer it costs Cooper and his crew, but really anything that goes wrong is really costing everybody back home that's Mm. the bigger picture that's the higher stakes like sure they might die in space but what's it actually doing back on earth and that's the biggest tragedy of how it affects them and oh yeah but also like i talk about from time to time the show about the maths of movies and um i think i've I've said time and time again, Hot Fuzz to me is a mathematically perfect comedy. Everything that gets set gets set uh, gets set up at the start gets knocked down later on, and it's the same with Interstellar. Like mathematically, not even the the content, just as a movie. You talk about how stressful it is and how like the stakes affect you know Coop and his crew, but then they affect everyone at home. But everything is meant to happen exactly how it happens in the film, and like during the like it's such an anxiety driven film. Like every time something goes wrong, you're like, oh my god, like how are they going to get out of this? But it's all meant to happen. Mm. It's all meant to happen because the time loop is cyclical and we're getting very ahead here. But like, and then Coop and Tars, you know, send the information back, which is what saves them. And then like, it's them in the future. Like it's like, it's all meant to happen. Like everything that goes wrong ends up having its own reward. And like, you know, you do get like this wonderful payoffs. Um, also, I'd forgotten Timothy Chalamet was in this film, and I really liked him. And normally, you know, I've had some issues with him as a performer in the past, but really dug him as uh, as the child. But Mackenzie Foy as Murph is is her and Jessica Chastain like just perfect, perfect in this. Mm. John Lithgow, um, great. I I love the score, and I love mm. how something. So I mean, <clears throat> I think we've been. Um, there's a visual language, I think, to sci-fi over the last 20 or 30 years, and it's like clean lines, you know, it's like it's very digital. You know, if you mm-hmm. think about like Star Wars, Star Trek, like, I mean, mm-hmm. that, to name a few, but um, I love how analogue this feels and mm-hmm. and that extends, I think, to the, um, to the score. Like there's something so genius about having the organ be like the mm-hmm. primary instrument in the score like uh there's a particular scene i think it's after they've just um like they're beginning their space journey and like there's just a droning organ note 
and then it zooms out and you just see a tiny speck of their spacecraft yes going across jupiter or something like that and i just thought, yes it's, what right a beautiful... across, it's across saturn and it's like this oh, big yeah 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 i picked it's, up on it this time i was like i like i made a visual note i'm like oh my god like what a beautiful shot and, and I just, like how you said analog because even the spaceship itself is set out in twelve segments like a clock, like yeah. Oh, I didn't even know yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, and like the Lazarus project that they send out in the first place, there's twelve astronauts. Like, oh, yeah. God. What a genius flick. Yeah, I just watched it and I missed all of this. <laughs> yeah, just little connections to clocks, to time, mm. to um, you know, the Lazarus project is you know Jesus resurrecting a man from the dead, mm. and um, you're right, it does feel really analog. There's no like clean, sleek. Um, you know, aerodynamic mm. lines, things are kind of like chunky, like 80s cars and like, mm. yeah, they have a it, it kind of feels like, yeah, yeah, like it feels like, it feels like what the human race could build in the near distant, sorry, in the near future, you know? Mm. Yeah, but even like, um, in, like TARS, like yeah. you would never, you would never pitch a, a robot like TARS to any sort of modern director anymore, but just because of his shape, he's like, yeah, he's like building blocks. He he looks really, really militant and heavy, and yeah, like the like dudes a block. That's really cool. Tars feels like a uh, like an homage to Hal, like a hundred percent, like in two thousand. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, um, the only sleekness is like his surface. Other um, than and, that, and, he's like, yeah, mm, a big door. And just, <laughs> I, I love how how tactile the whole film feels like when they're going through the wormhole and the the ship is rattling like that's mm. one that i wish they actually did a a viewing recently in imax i wish I, I couldn't make it but i would have loved to have seen it in that immersive um like have an immersive experience with it again i've only seen it on like blu-ray since it, since the cinema obviously but you know like i just remember the like feeling like the rattle of the spacecraft mm you know, in the cinema and it's just like, oh, makes me smile just thinking about it. Mm, and the dust, the dust back mm. at, you know, back at home in the dust bowl, how they've flipped all the plates over so there's no yeah. dust when they're eating and, you know, Coop at the end when he walks through the replicated house and the first thing he does is he wipes his finger along the table because there's yeah. no no dust. And that could that probably was like a habit. Imagine walking home, mm. hanging up your jacket, and the first thing you would do is put your hand on a surface that's covered in dust and, like, yeah. this habitual thing you do when you walk, first walk in your home, being different suddenly and, yeah. yeah. And one one thing as well, like, we've talked about, t- like, time is obviously kind of this, this ongoing motif through the, the film, but even, like, down to the structure of the film itself, the pacing of this film, like, this is a movie that's just shy of three hours long, it is not a Star Wars film. It is not an action film. It is very much like space ex- exploration. It's it, the, If anyone else had made this film, it could have been dry <laughs> as a piece of toast. Do you know what I mean? Like it could have been real medicine to watch. But the flick moves at an incredible pace. It never slows down. It never feels boring. Well, it does slow down, but not in a boring way. You know, it takes its time to show things, but it's always interesting. It's always moving. I remember like, and the first time I watched it, I was like, gee, this is a, a long flick, but I'm digging it. Having seen it before, I was like, oh, I'll probably feel the time in this one this time around. Nope. I couldn't yeah. believe I'd watched 45 minutes of it. Like, it was like a blink of an eye. Like, and like, all they'd done is go to school and like, find out that like, 
what is it? Wow, what is the thing they do? They're saying that you can't go. They never went to space. Like they, they changed the textbooks they deny in school. The moon landing. Yeah, yeah they deny the moon landing, mm. and yeah. infuriates Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, by the way, like incredible performance. Like just so wonderful. Um, everyone, everyone in it is great. Anne Hathaway. Um, so she's jumped from from the Batman films to now do um, Interstellar. Michael Caine, uh, just Michael a serious great. So good in it. Um, everyone's great. And uh, Nick, you did request the chance to have a platform to talk about Matt Damon's performance, so let's dive into that. Yeah, go. <laughs> well, no, nah, I mean, I specifically, I just wanted to be unleashed on a certain moment in this film. But, like, I do think it's, like, the fact that we spend a lot of the film hearing about this Dr. Man um, who is the best of us. <laughs> you know, they say that phrase, he was the best of us. Um, but we don't see him. And I think mm. that's great. Like it's a it's a wonderful decision for the film, and then to arrive and wake up, Matt Damon, <laughs> yeah, an incredible moment, and then for it to turn out that he's um, fudged the data so that his planet looks likely um, just because he didn't want to die out there. Which I will say, in fairness, I wouldn't want to die on an ice planet by myself either. But mm. <laughs> you know. But you know what you uh, um, signed up for, yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> but, no, look, the moment, like, and, and one of the things I said, you know, for you guys to bring was, was you know, your, your top three moments. It doesn't, doesn't have to be scenes, so I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but I, I do think the finest moment of Nolan's career is in this film, and that's that sequence when from Matt uh, Damon's character attacking um, McConaughey and then, getting in the spaceship and going up into the uh, to try and dock to the space station. Yeah. Which he then doesn't do the airlock correctly, so he gets blown apart. Mm. I agree. Again, I think I said this in our... our, um, We just lost you. Sorry, Nick, we just lost you for a second, mate. He died that way. Inject my veins, but that scene where... Oh, sorry. Where where did oh, no. I get to when you? It's lost? the one we're most passionate about. Come you were on, talking about you were talking about how Matt Damon got blown away after try, after docking incorrectly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, have you got me now? Yeah, we got you now. Okay. I mean, I could just talk to myself about this anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, then when the the space station is spinning, mm. so McConaughey has to spin their spaceship and align it and then dock. I like, yeah, as I said, inject that into me any day of the week. I think mm. that's like possibly my favorite ever moment in any movie. So, yeah. It's, yeah, the, just that line is like, just, you know, if I pass out, just make sure you complete the doc correctly to yeah. Tars. What a great little moment. It's a really wonderful moment. This film, to answer your question about top three moments, I'll give you one of them. I guess I had two, I had two moments in Interstellar that rival that as well. One is the event horizon itself where he goes through the black hole. Just never seen anything like that before. But, like, the Tesseract behind the bookshelf, man. Like, I remember the first time I saw that. Again, what am I watching? Like, I could not believe what I was seeing. Like, it rationalized what I consider to be a highly irrational topic at the time. Like, the idea of time travel. The idea of, like, traveling across. Like... It just it's it's hard for me to verbalize because I still don't understand it, but just seeing that visualized so plain, I'm like, 
oh my goodness, like all these things that made no sense and I can tr- to try and talk about you've done in a single image. Like he went and through I a black adore, hole, he's behind a bookshelf and now it makes sense. And I adore the moment where it folds up on itself and folds away and it's like mm. all the oxygen is just sucked out of just the cinema. Like mm. the, fold, the folding of, of it and putting it away I thought was also like there's one thing to sort of have him wake up there and then be navigating and using it but watching it fold in on itself and fold away and then just like Coop's breathing in his own helmet mm. I just flawless that's one of my favorite is the yeah that scene but the folding the folding yeah. up mm. and him trying to find Murph in the present day so he can give her the information that's what I was talking about before when I said like you could not get to Interstellar without Inception the idea of like traveling through that wormhole trying to find the right place in time it looks like inception on acid it's just like you know d- dimensions folding on each other like time folding him trying to find the right spot like mm. what a breathtaking I, sequence like i can't i can't even the like the shock um i felt when watching that for the first time when there was no hint that this movie was going in that direction. No. You know, it was just like, you kind of like, you know, it was like, you. Str- it was a great film, but you know, like straight up and down, just like flying through space kind of movie. And then he goes through this black hole and comes out into this, like, yeah, this like labyrinth of like bookshelves and this structure. And it was like truly shocking in the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was mm. wild the first time choice. I watched The first time I watched it, when I saw him going to the black hole, I was like, oh, this would be how the movie ends. Like, he's going to die in the black hole or we'll, like, go on with Anne Hathaway's character. And, like, I hit, like, the time code button on my on my remote and it was, like, over an hour to go. I'm like, what could they do in an hour? Like, he's about to die. And then when the Tesseract happens, I was like, Jesus Christ, what am I watching? Like, what are the... Again, like, Nolan, like, you think you know what's going on. He just kicks into a whole other direction. You're like, Jesus Christ, like, what is it? And it's so perfectly done. Like, that to me is the moment where the film becomes magic, like, true magic. Mm. And like, Nick, how you were saying in Inception about how cool is it when they're bending the city back on itself? How cool is the cylindrical space station? Yes. And they're playing, they're playing baseball yeah. and it goes back to the, the beginning of the film where at the beginning of the film they were playing baseball and it got interrupted by a dust storm, but this time they're playing baseball and it gets interrupted by a gravitational pull and it snaps <laughs> yeah, the window right. on the ceiling. Oh, yeah. It, was, so it just great. gave you like a lighthearted, like yeah. all is well moment. I loved it, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so great. Um, I could, just like with Dark Knight, I could talk about this film for hours. Mm. I just think like. Yeah, this is a special, special film. Like, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I think it's, I think it's my favorite of his. Like, I think it's like if I'm gonna ask, we're gonna talk about ranking some films towards the end of the show, but it's just like as good as the Dark Knight is, and the Dark Knight is really, really good. This flick is a magic trick. It should not work. There is no reason this movie should work as well as it does. There's some really dopey concepts in there. It should be it should be really boring and it shouldn't work at all. And instead, it's it, it's a genuine masterpiece. And to be like you know one for the ladies, both you know mm-hmm. female characters in this were written so well and were given so much like to play with and were given so much on their shoulders as well. It was really 
yeah, it was really lovely that the girls the girls got something got got just as an important role or just as mm. an emotional um, you know foothold in the storytelling as well. Yeah, yeah. Poor old um, yeah. Poor old Casey Affleck just gets to be a horrible person. Like son doesn't yeah, grow up much, does it? Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Well, uh, yeah. Um, I'll I will interject and say he's a product of his upbringing, which for sure. You know, it's supposed to show. It's supposed to show how everybody back on Earth can potentially be jaded because they yeah. don't have, um, you know, a, a hope for another world. For sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. And like to be fair, that character goes through again, like Nolan punishing his characters. Like mm. that character goes through a lot. Like, yeah, arguably as much as Murph does, maybe worse. Like Murph doesn't get to say goodbye because she's so like. Oh my god! I don't know. I can't even talk about Murph. I'm going to cry. Like her storyline is so sad, especially mm. now. Again, like as I said before, as a father, like watching it, I was like, oh my god! Like all I could think about is like, what would happen if I was put in that situation? I'd be like, I guess I just I'd like I'd be listening to Matthew McConaughey, like, stay, you idiot, just stay. That's what I'd be doing. Mm. And it's so heartbreaking when they come back from um, Miller's water planet, and they come back, and um, that's when Murph and Cooper are the same age. So the whole, mm. like, when you come back, we'll be the same age, mm. but you don't realise that, like, that's when he's he's come back and he thinks that's it. I've come mm. back and now we're the same age and this is it. This is all I can do. Mm. I'm done. Like, what an all-is-lost moment sort of thing. Yeah. Like, oh. yeah. And then I, I don't know if it was just me, but, like, bring on a sequel. Bring on the sequel of, like, um, McConaughey and Tars going, yeah, yeah, going to uh, and Hathaway's planet. Mm. Oh man, I don't, I don't know if I could handle it. As in, like, Coop meets up there, and then they run to other problems there. It might get yeah. a bit Martian. <laughs> yeah, or it'd be funny if it was like cut to like a thousand years into the future, and there's like warring factions. Where where are the Coops? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, Doctor Man had had family, and they want revenge. Like, yeah. it's, <laughs> um, I did like the ending. Like, I'd forgotten the ending of him like going out to space to go find. I was like, what a like weird like one thing I, I really struggled with, and I didn't think it was a bad thing. Like, it's not a criticism, but something within myself I struggled with. I'm like, he's just seen his daughter for the first time in a couple of years for him, but for in you know, her entire lifetime, and she's the point. She's like, look, you know. You shouldn't see your daughter, your child die. So you go off and have adventures and I've got my family here. And I really mm. struggled with that. But then I found it really hopeful. We're like, oh, when he gets to whiz out into space and go save his friend. Like it's kind of, mm. yeah. And the, like, there are more adventures to be had with this guy. But um, I think it's the same trouble I have with the Alien franchise when Ripley like wakes up and all her family's dead after 100 years. And I was like, oh, it's just a, I struggle with time. Uh, we've talked about this with AI before as well, Maddie. You know, my feelings on AI and some <laughs> other movies like that. Um what no, I, I, I loved I love the the closing sequence of the film. Like I love mm. that, you know, she she was so torn up that he had left her and yeah. left them for, for that whole for, for her whole sort of childhood into adulthood. Um and I, I love that like you know she was able to realize that it was him doing the the mm. gravity stuff and then she was able to go and live this fantastic life and i think it was just like beautiful that at the end they were able to meet that one more time and just mm. sort of acknowledge what had happened and then you know she she sort of didn't need him anymore and but i mm. think in a good way yeah that positive closure like 
Mm. Yeah, hey, he was da- her. He was her ghost. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and she finally realised that she had him with with her the whole time. He was mm. the ghost. Yeah. All righty, let's jump into the shortest film in the uh, in the Nolan catalogue, I believe. Um, one I've only seen once, and if I'm honest, probably my least favourite. Um, not a bad film, but you imagine just probably the one that I engage with the least. Um, 2017's Dunkirk. Yeah, I've only seen it once, um, and there was a few parts um, upon reflection that I thought was really um, – again, breaking the mould, and mm. I was happy that he broke the mould, um, and that was that there was no um, scenes where they're like, like there's no meetings and strategy meetings, mm. which is really common for a war film, and there was no big speech of this is why we're fighting for the freedom of our blah, blah, blah. Like there was none of that as well, which was really breaking the mould. So I, I remember that quite clearly. Yeah, it's um, not really... It's not yeah. really a protagonist. Yeah. Mm. Agree. It's very much a frenetic film, especially when you go into the soldier's timeline. And, like, all I can mm. really remember, and it's, I'm definitely due for a rewatch with this flick, is, like, them on the boat and the camera isn't focused on one character. The camera is in amongst the soldiers and everything's just happening around, um, happening around them, um, which, again, like, the idea of, like, the chaos of war. And the idea of, you know, like, these are kids. Like, the, like most of the people fighting on the lines are kids. Like, they're 17 years old, 18 years old. They have no idea what's going on. They're just trying to survive. Like, I remember that being brilliant. But that's, if I'm honest with you, I don't remember much more. And then you know, Tom Hardy using his Bane voice in a plane. Um, that's about all <laughs> yeah. I remember. I remember, um, like, the slow, the slow, steady moving of the camera, especially around the soldiers and stuff, sort of made you feel, um, yeah, as if you were like there and, you know, you were one of the soldiers just looking at the expense mm. of what was happening and you were just as tired and, like, yes. worn down. I appreciated that, but I don't remember too much else from that film mm. at all from seeing it once, yeah. 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 I think, like, and I, no, no disrespect to the film, I still think it's a really good film. I think this is as close to a disposable film that Nolan has ever made where you mm. you know it doesn't have those elements that we've talked about a lot that you really grasp onto you know like a a sort of mm. signature moment or like a, a theme um like we just talked about with Interstellar and the family stuff like it's um and I think it's designed that way mm-hmm, for sure. um, I think it's it's not it's designed to not tell one soldier's story but to tell the the mm. many um yeah and I guess talk about like a heroic moment um, in British history that, you know, everyone was involved in. I mean, it's a pretty cool story that, you know, these soldiers have been dealt a massive defeat uh, in Europe and there was a threat that, that Britain could be invaded. So, you know, the whole country had to launch this rescue mission to get the soldiers home so they could mm. defend England if needed. Um, so it's a pretty cool story. Um, but if I'm honest, this is probably one where, there's a few cool moments that I, that I would take away from it, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't rewatch this one often. I've probably seen it like maybe once since, since the cinema. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the thing that I really appreciate about the film and I, I think is more important than the movie itself is the reactions from the people who were there. Like I remember after the film came out, like a lot of veterans came out and spoke about it and they're like, he got it exactly right. Like that's what it felt like. And it's the idea of, you know, we talk about representation in film quite a bit. Um, and I know some people probably be like, oh, what a bunch of white people. It's like, 
no, no, no. It's not the bunch of white people. It's the fact that like these, and you talked, you touched on it before, Maddie, as well as so these war stories. It's always about the big speech, the big heroic moment, like the you know the big plan, whatever. Big rallying, yeah. But that's not. You know, and again, as someone who's never served their country and, and you know, like likely never will, um, you don't understand what it. You know, most most of us can't even fathom what it's like, what the idea of war and battle looks like, and it's not that glorified shot of you know, you know, five soldiers sneaking in and taking over an entire camp or anything like that. In fact, more often than not, it's people dying, like, mm-hmm. and not even realizing they're about to get killed, and it's the chaotic. Um, you know, kind of situation. So hearing that he got it right and they were like, it's such a tribute and testament to what we fought for, I think is more important than the film itself in a way. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, I don't, yeah, I've got, I, I want to give it a watch. I'm now at a point where I'm ready to rewatch it again, but yeah, I don't just don't have much more to say about Dunkirk. I am. Um, I'm trying to think if I didn't know it was a Nolan film and I saw some yeah. stills or anything, would I be able to pick it? And I think I would, because mm-hmm. of like again, his really beautiful depth of um, the actual yeah film footage and the color treatments and the um, you know detail to costume um, and authenticity to the locations. So mm. I reckon I reckon I'd still be able to pick that it was a Nolan film and the sound design and score. I reckon as well. Give it away. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it seemed yeah a little bit out of his wheelhouse but at the same time we could still clearly pick that it was yeah a nolan film so that's kind of cool uh, well let's then jump to a film that was released during the pandemic um was uh, praised as one of the most confusing films ever time and one mm-hmm. of the only nolan films not to use the same font on the poster as every other nolan film uh it's tenet <laughs> Like, let's be honest, like, he uses that same font on just about every poster. Even Oppenheimer used it. I didn't realize that Tenant Backwards is Tenant <laughs> until, like, today. Oh, shut up. I didn't either. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> Did you both not? Oh. No, not until okay. today. It didn't click. We had other shit yeah. to think about out of I... that whole film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to to me, Tenet, I really enjoyed, but I kind of feel like it's it's Inception light in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's, I know the concepts are a bit different, but um, to me, like they could almost be like like linked. You know, I feel, yeah. I feel them, when I look back on it, the, the feeling I get from them both is really similar. But um, I feel like he's really similar um, to Michael Mann in that his protagonist is always like, well, 90% of the time it's like a, like a well-educated white dude, <laughs> but like, it's a real, like, you know, he loves that, that um, like real, like expert, really accomplished at everything. Like, I feel like the protagonist is, is pretty similar. And I feel like that's the same here with, particularly with the Robert Pattinson character. I think he's like, you could, ins- you could drop him into any Nolan film and he would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have seen Tenet once. I saw it uh, around the time Zoe was born, so I, like my memory of it is a little bit uh, vague. Um, I remember being blown away by the visuals. Um, and again, like that's saying a lot for a Nolan film because you kind of come to expect the pedigree of visuals, but just the way he played with time. Um, you know, we talked. You talked about like kind of 
like top three like Nolan moments. Only Nolan can do it in the third act where they're marching into and away from battle at the same time. Like I've never seen anything like that before. Probably never will again. I think it's stunning. Um, and I always think back to the moment where he reverses the gunshot when they first teach him about the again. Like I, again, I remember very little of the film. It's definitely due for a rewatch. I didn't have time to watch it before the show. But the idea of them explaining to the protagonist, hey, this is what the plot of this film is basically and him doing the reverse gunshot like just being insane um mm-hmm. just i just couldn't get my head around it clearly can't get my head around it now um but just visually what a what a stunning flick i couldn't get my yeah, it's, head it's around a- yeah the villain like kenneth branagh was incredible and he was so yeah like aggressive and scary but in terms of like what he was trying to achieve that was my one problem is like what (laughs) Like, i think (laughs) i think i have a vague saying this is also the film that i least understood after coming out of the cinema but from what i understand of it in the future i think that they've used up all of the world's resources or something like that so the in the future they are going back through time to um, I forget what their ultimate goal is, but like um, like they I think it's about like resources, like from taking resources from the present. So um, yeah. they like buried the future, came back and buried some gold for um, Kenneth Branagh's character to find, and that's how he became like wealthy, and he's working for them in the present i thought it was um like that's part of it but i understood it to be that they kenneth brandon like brandon wants to end the world and so to do that he has to make himself wealthy so that he can end the world properly by sending back pieces to then build a weapon back in time to then kill everything and end the world so I, that's how I read it, but I could be completely wrong. Um, this and is I our, this is like, our joke does, grenade again. We're, we're all stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, why does he want to just end all life as we know it? Like, I mean, okay, but yeah, I, who, I don't who know. really wants okay. to do it's that? So so, yeah. And you know what, what, what didn't help with this is this weird, weird decision to put the dialogue really low in the mix. So <laughs> you I didn't. I reckon I missed about twenty five percent of the dialogue in this film. Mm. Yeah, he's deliberately yeah embedding the dialogue underneath yeah the foley and the score and mm. yeah. I'm not sure. I totally agree with that decision to do that. He's done that in a yeah. couple of films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Was, I, was yeah, Tom Hardy in this no, one? Because you played subtitles. Yeah. No, yeah. there's a bit where Michael Caine is in it and he's eating a steak and you can. Hear him eat the steak louder than his dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of great. Um, but there's some great things in the. Uh, you know, had a bit of a laugh at it, but like I do that. Um, John David Washington is a sick lead man for this film. Like he's like one of the more action orientated leading men. I think like quite often, yeah, quite often Nolan's leading men are like brains rather than brawn. But like mm. he's you could tell he's like, um, like a real good like action star. Um, yeah, Kenneth Branagh is a really good villain. Um, yeah, and I do love like um, all the 
you mentioned it, James, that like scene at the end where they're going into one team is going into battle while mm. the other team is like going through it the other way. And the, I think the best part of that is there's a building that gets blown up and then put back together. In, like, yeah, real time. yeah, yeah. It's, it's spectacular. Mm. Yeah, they're waiting for that as a cue for them to then continue and mm. swap sides. And, and I like that Um, are they in different colours? Like the teams are in different colours so that mm. like you don't get confused. But as if you get confused because one team's literally like running backwards and like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, I like that they get air dropped in in shipping containers so that they don't know, Um, I think, I forgot why. Why do they get dropped in in shipping containers? I don't know. It was something really, it was uh, a cool reason. Yes. I just forgot what it was. Yeah. It was something so they don't get mixed messages or like, yeah, it was cool. Maybe they can't know how it turns out. You can't know the future or something like that. Yeah, otherwise you end up then changing changing it and mm. you can't change it. You have to just, yeah, play it out as it comes because that's the right way it needed to happen or, yeah. I thought that was cool. and um, Yeah, I need to rewatch it. I've only seen it once and I remember really, really enjoying it, but it was it was a tricky watch. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. That was definitely heading towards Jonathan Nolan Westworld territory for me. <laughs> like, I remember after I saw it, I was like, oh, wasn't that confusing? People are over, like, overcomplicating it. But, like, now I'm like, I can't remember. Like, and everything yeah. you're saying sounds like something that I haven't seen. I'm like, maybe it was more complicated than I gave myself credit <laughs> for. Uh, <laughs> uh, but visually, like, gorgeous, um, mm. for sure. All right, well, let's jump to his final film so far. Plenty more to come, I'm sure. Um, big flick this year and something really different for Nolan. is a biopic, um, which he's never really done before. It's based on his previous source material. Um, and I was describing it to people as a period drama shot as an action film, and I stand by my assessment. <laughs> it is, of course, Oppenheimer. Killian Murphy playing uh, Oppenheimer himself. We've got Emily Blunt. We've got... Oh my god, we've got so many people there. She doesn't have to help me out with Florence. What was that? Sorry? Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh, of course. Um uh oh, who's the Australian guy in it? Um who Jason Clark, um, playing one of the lead interrogators. You've got Robert Downey Jr., of course. Um what and Matt uh Damon. Matt Damon. Just pull it up. Yeah. The, the Gary tra- Oldman. The, Gary Oldman, the traitor Matt Damon and Gary Oldman. Yeah. I'm doing yeah. the live Google now. We've got Rami Malik, Josh Hartnett, Josh Peck, Casey. Oh Affleck. yeah, of course. Um, Is Michael Caine in this one? I can't remember. I just saw it a couple of months ago. No. I think he's not in this one. We have Eldon Einrich, we've got oh, Kenneth yeah. Branagh, we've got Matthew Modine, um, Olivia Thur- Thurlby. I really oh, I love her. Olivia Thurlby, that's right, yeah. I really liked her in this one. She's yeah. great in um, Yeah, Jason Clark, Tom Conti. I can never say his last name, David Dusmulchin. Oh, David Dusmulchin, yeah, he's great. Dusmulchin, yeah. We, we totally skipped over him in our Dark Knight talk because he plays the guy, the insane patient inter- interrogated by he Harvey Dent. He was great Dent. in that. So yeah, good. he was really good. That flick put him. That was like his first. I think it was his first film role, um, and like he's done so much since. Like he came back as Polka Dot Man in Suicide Squad, and he was Suicide Squad. Yeah, he's great. Loved mm. Smulchin. He always said that he goes because you said you can't pronounce his name. He always says you got to pretend you're a New Yorker talking about your small chin, the small chin. Um, <laughs> I heard that in an interview once. Uh, anyway, we, um, I took us off topic. Oppenheimer. What a phenomenal flick. Like. I had no idea the story about Robert, uh, Robert Oppenheimer before this movie. Just pure wonder. Like three hours goes by so quickly. And I'll say this, like we're all waiting for that one thing. We're all waiting for the nuclear bomb test. The flick to me gets infinitely more interesting in the last hour. 
Like the bomb is like everything left of the bomb is like just the build up to something even better for me. Um, but we we all saw it in theaters, I'm guessing, because it hasn't come out mm-hmm. on physical or anything. Um, yeah. Thoughts thoughts on Oppenheimer. You want to yeah, go first, I, Nick? I, I thought it was spectacular. Uh, I I was lucky enough yeah to see it in IMAX, um, the real high res whatever i don't know film lingo whatever the uh christopher nolan's chosen format (laughs) yeah um and it was just spectacular like and i I do agree with you james i think like i think traditionally a film like that ends with the bomb and then yeah wrap up oh we've lost you again nick i'm so sorry mate Give him a moment to to join us again. Um, he will. He will come back, back to us. Come back, friend. That freeze frame of his face is really unnerving, though. <laughs> he's got headphones. He's glasses. Now we're back. back. You're back. I am. Um, Yay! It was right. You said Yay. a film. Like, the last I thing we heard. You. Yeah, the last thing we heard you say was a film like that would typically end with the bomb. That's the last thing we heard you say. No, no, we're so close to the end. We're so close. To the end. Well, I will go ahead, um, and I will say um, once again, I thought um, it was cool. Um, once again, it was cool that Nolan lays it all out there right in the opening title sequence, where he literally puts the line about Prometheus steals fire from the gods and he's tortured for all eternity. So then we mm. know we know it's going to be about a character who does something like incredibly effective for mankind and then has to suffer for it so Mm. automatically you know okay this is going to be about yeah the striving for something the achieving something and then Mm. the fallout and the disaster behind it so you already get told straight away what's happening and I really thought it was really clever that kind of like memento he does the black and white but it's not about dividing and interjecting time forwards and backwards I like that it's about the fission and the fusion it's about Mm. you know the first half of the film is about getting the atom bomb which is fission um and separating the atom and then the second half of the film is what happens after the atom bomb's been created and it's fusion which is the hydrogen bomb Mm. and that's the black and white footage so i like that he's literally signed signposted the two halves of pre-atom bomb success and post-atom bomb success um and done it that way. So I thought that was really clever, not just doing black and white and colour for the sake of it. Yeah, mm. no, for sure. And one of the yeah. scariest moments in that flick for me, like, because you talked about, like, kind of the precursor and then the kind of that race to get to the bomb, the idea that all these physicists, the minute that they found out the atom can be split, everyone's just like, oh, well, we can create a bomb with this now. It's like, why is that your first thought? Like, <laughs> Well, that's because the way that you... S- when you start with one atom and you split it into two, it expels a ridiculous amount of energy. Mm. So it's not that they were like, oh, now we can make mm. a bomb. It's that process is a bomb. Yeah, so it can sure. Be weaponized. It was more that, oh, shit, it can be weaponized now yeah. and by the wrong people and that forced their hand. Mm. The thing that I found scary is they did it and then after they went, well, if we can separate them, now we can combine two to make one and that's an even bigger explosion and that's Mm. the hydrogen bomb and that's what I found terrifying. They got to this point, they dropped it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then they thought, let's make a bigger one 
because yeah. we know we can split the atom now, we can fuse too. And I'm like, that's, mm. and that's what Oppenheimer's talking about, about how he unleashed something that can end the world. And it wasn't exactly the atomic bomb he's talking about, it, that process that can mm. be then weaponized. And I love the cyclical nature that Oppenheimer first started in quantum physics, where he's studying how a black hole collapses and like a black hole collapses by, you know, gaining heaps and heaps of energy and then collapsing in on itself and it's sucking in everything and then destroying everything. And that's almost the same plot of the film. It's mm. about like creating a, a heap amount of momentum and energy and then, um, you know, the explosion or the event happens and then there's it's sucking in everything around it, the collapse of everything around it. And that's signposting how it's changed society forever it's changed how we see everything um, mm. and I just like that that's tied in with what he actually was studying and looking for and then the yeah the timeline of the film and then yeah his personal journey where it was all the you know the color footage was all subjective and it was all about um, how Oppenheimer felt and how he saw what he was doing and the turmoil and then the black and white is all objective and so that allows the audience to decide are we glorifying him or are we vilifying him and it lets us remove ourselves and step back and then it allows us to have a point of view in the mm. black and white footage. Um, but I will say even though I saw it in cinemas, the first 20 minutes that we were seeing the um, – fusion footage, the black and white footage, I couldn't understand Robert Downey Jr. It took me a little bit to like mm. get my ear into his – he didn't even put an accent. It's Robert Downey, Robert, Robert Downey Jr. But I couldn't hear him and I couldn't understand him. I and agree. That, I noticed that I as well annoying. when I watched it. Um, yeah. One thing I really liked um, from a visual point of view, especially earlier in the film, they still did it later in the film, but it's really in the, early, the earlier part of the film, he's having dreams of, of black holes in space and you just kind of have these weird, like, kind of starry visuals. And it was just, mm. like, felt like a really, like, lovely nod to Interstellar. Like, I know it wasn't <laughs> that specifically, but just the idea of, like, you know, we've seen Nolan talk about black holes in the past and, like, use them as this kind of, like, pathway to um, the betterment of mankind, you know, kind of as, as an assistive tool. And in Oppenheimer, it's the complete opposite. It's the idea of, like, self-collapsing and, like, kind of self-destructive um, and becomes that metaphor, as you're talking about. Um, mm. we, we should have Nick Owen back now. He just dropped out for a few minutes, but he's finding a better spot closer to the router. <laughs> Nick yeah. Owen, can you hear us? Yes, can you hear me? We can Yay! hear you. Fantastic. Welcome, Welcome back. back, sir. Thank you. We're all a lot older in the time that you were gone. Um, <laughs> uh, what did I miss? Give me a, Maddie give me did, the cliff notes. I couldn't even like Maddie did such an astute job of explaining Oppenheimer. Like I, I, I would just fudge it. It would sound awful if I tried mm. to regurgitate what she put out. But she was just giving her thoughts on the idea of um, the idea of Prometheus, you know, stealing the sun and like the self fulfilling prophecy of Oppenheimer creating something that can destroy, destroy the world. And in in and of itself, he kind of destroyed his own career and stuff like that. Mm. Well, um, I think I told you I was, I'd murder it. I was very mm. honest. <laughs> I'm so scared to start a dialogue here because I'll freeze, but here we go. Do it. Um, I think it's a spectacular performance by Killian Murphy. For sure. Because he displays, like, with Oppenheimer, there's so much vanity. You can tell mm. he wants the acclaim um, and he wants to be the 
he loves loves to be important and for to to, to give an example there uh after they've created the bomb and then it gets shipped off you know the the army have no use for him and he's and he says oh you'll keep me informed and matt damon just says why you know yeah. and there's you know there's such vanity but then what a conflicting performance to then reckon with what he's you know i think i heard bits and pieces of what you're saying that Matty. um mm. but you know to, to be so like um conflicted and to have so much guilt about what you've mm. created potentially something that can destroy the earth so it's um such a spectacular performance i think um for, for that reason um and before i get cut off another another moment which is just pure nolan is like i think a lot of directors could um do the bomb sequence really well but there's only one nolan and just the the choice of having it be completely silent and you can just yes. hear you can hear the breath mm. um it's just something that you know, I wouldn't have thought to do it that way, and it's just so spectacular. Mm. Yeah, like you're expecting like a guy who uses sound so wonderfully, and again, like this film is no exception. I think when I reviewed it straight after I saw it, I, like I talked about the use of sound and music. Like it's a military. Was it you, Maddie, who pointed out it's a military film with no drums and score? Like, yes, deli- he's um, he deliberately made sure there was no yeah major like a drum or percussion beat because he didn't want it to feel like um, you know glorifying the military's role. Um, mm. He wanted it to be more um, humanized. Um, so yeah, he removed that. Mm. I thought it was really fascinating with sound that like. I, going into it, was expecting, right, whenever we get to the Trinity test, whenever we get to the bomb scene, that's going to be the loudest part of that's, the film. Yeah, that's what and I was, I was about he, to go to, yeah. Yeah, and then when he's actually, after the bomb's been dropped and he goes to the community hall and he's giving that, um, you know, success speech, that, mm. that was the loudest, mm. you know, most overwhelming, most, you know, devastating soundscape of the film i was like not expecting that at all i was blown away by that choice for sure um i want to touch on emily blunt for a second i know that um i think one criticism you had maddie was that she gets sidelined for a big part of the film but i would argue the best part of the film is is she carries she carries the entire film in like two minutes of just that wonderful monologue where she interrogated and just like flips it all on its head uh, she is probably underutilized a little bit, but when she's on, like she steals that scene from everyone in that room. That's uh, one of my favorite scenes. I love that she draws him in. She traps him. She's mm. so clever about it. She plays coy. She looks down. She looks unsure with her answers at the beginning. And then like dude like grabs his chair and gets closer and thinks I've got her. And then all mm. of a sudden she just ridicules him and she even like ha ha laughs in his face. And I don't mm. like the way you phrased it. And like she annihilates him. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the Catherine that we should have seen throughout the whole film. That's the Catherine I wanted to see through the whole film. Mm. But like, again, yeah, that scene wouldn't have the, you know, the effect that it did if we'd had that Catherine through the whole film. Now, did I miss something with this film? Because I remember when it was released or like just prior to, to release, people were up in arms and outraged by the film because it had some really upsetting, gratuitous sex in the film. But from what I understand, from the movie I watched, it was not that at all. Am I missing something? Um, I remember like so many people were like, oh, it's filth, it's disgusting, like it's so gratuitous. And all I remember is like there's one scene where 
he's having an affair, you know, with with Fonchu, and then she sees a vision of them naked together. But it's not like gratuitous. Did I miss something? Like because people I, mean, I think it's it's an interesting choice to for sure for 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 her to hop off <laughs> and <laughs> go get that book. You know, the I am. Um, Oh uh, yeah, destroyer, destroyer. Of yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, I don't know. That's that's a choice from Chris Nolan. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I didn't think it was co- like I, I was it was it controversial, James. I think yeah, the thing but, is the one where they're in the interrogation. That's room, what I'm thinking as well. When, it's when they managed to get Oppenheimer to admit that he was in a sexual relationship with Jean, and so that's when Emily or Catherine at the time finally realizes that he was having an affair and so she has this big visual and it's literally Florence Pugh like naked grinding him on the chair in the mm. um mm. room in the interrogation room but I I don't know I thought it was just as graphic as it needed to be I yeah like I remember the, yeah there was some pretty controversial stuff like some like articles were written like lots of articles like be warned if you go and see Oppenheimer like you're going to catch an eyeful look like, was one headline <laughs> And, like, all the reviews on IMDb and stuff, like, a lot of people are like, oh, like, I love Nolan, but he's really missed it. Like, why did he put that dirty, dirty scene in it? And I was like, oh, we're going to see something, like, really un-Nolan in this movie? And, like, I, was, I remember watching him, like, did I, like, blink and I missed something really horrible? But it yeah, sounds I didn't like... Think it was a, I didn't think it was a big deal at all. No. Yeah. Okay, cool. Like, I was just like, did I, like, cause I didn't leave, you know, I didn't leave the cinema at any point. I'm like... I don't know. I remember people, but yeah, there was such out. There was a lot of outrage, Nick. Like people were like, Nolan fans were turning their noses up at him and stuff after this movie because of mm. the sex, apparently. So not me. No. Not. <laughs> um, and James, what did you love so much about the final hour? Like I thought it was really, um, you know, you were saying that you thought it really like um, that you enjoyed that 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 last hour more than I, even the. I think it's you know, it comes down to my love of a courtroom drama. Like a well done courtroom drama really, um, really draws me in. And the interrogation of Oppenheimer, obviously that's throughout the film, but in the final act, it's really coming down, and it's looking like he's not going to get any justice. And you get that wonderful Emily Blunt performance, but then you also get the kind of exposure and and ridicule of Robert Downey Jr.'s character as well. Like, you find out that Robert Downey Jr. kind of manufactured a lot of things Mm. so that we weighed against Oppenheimer, but then, like, they kind of blow the whistle on him and it all kind of turns... Again, like, that theme in Nolan films where the characters go through a lot of suffering, but they do kind of end up kind of working out. And this is based on true stories, so Nolan, you know, couldn't really control that. Like, what just happened... If this is, you know, if this is accurate to what really did happen, the idea that, like, yes, he did suffer, but he did get that justice in the end... um, and he wasn't, you know, the monster that he was kind of made out to be. So just that whole, I think it was the tension of all that and then the final release of like, oh, okay, cool. Like it kind of worked mm-hmm. out for him in some form or another. I really enjoyed. Um, and I think it's just, you know, getting to see Robert Danger sitting in a courtroom talking, like that's yeah. entertainment for me. <laughs> like just watching yeah. RDJ he's, go at it. So He's really great in it. And um, I love that it's all, again, down to vanity, you know. He got embarrassed at that. Hearing, I forget what he said. What did Oppenheimer say? I, I forget what that phrase. Oh, I can't. Said. I can't remember either. But yeah, he just embarrasses him in front of yeah, yeah in front of the group. and it's all just stems from that. And like the idea that he thinks he thought that like he he said something that would make Einstein dislike him, and it was something completely irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. How endearing was Einstein? I thought he was really well 
um, portrayed and played. That was Tom yeah. Conti. I thought um, for the longest time it was um, Sylvester McCoy, you know, the guy who plays Radagast in the Hobbit movies. I thought, oh, he, was play- really? I thought he was playing Einstein, but it was Tom Conti. Um, he would have still done well, yeah. It looks very and similar. I, like, I, yeah. I um, loved, loved Matt Damon as like a grumpy babysitter almost. Yeah. <laughs> I love what what was it? I've written down a quote that I thought was so funny, and it's like the when they're starting to recruit all the scientists for the Trinity Project, and he's like, "How much can I tell them?" And then Matt Damon's like, "As much as you like until you feel my boot on your balls," and then he like swigs the beer. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, yes, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like you mentioned just, John. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. No, that's fine. I'm just saying he was a grumpy, grumpy old. You know, grumpy old guy, and I loved him mm. for it. <laughs> no, definitely. And you mentioned Josh Hartner before. It was really great to see him show up again. I haven't seen him in mm. anything in a while. I'm sure he's done stuff, but like to see him in a Nolan flick was really nice. Mm. Mm. And, um, um, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, oh, the guy who played Robbie. Um, uh, David. Oh my God, is it Crum? Crumholtz. Oh, David Crumholtz. Yeah. Oh, he's great. He's he is fantastic. He's like the loyal, like the loyal best friend. He knew, you know. He knew why Oppie's, you know, arm was being twisted. He knew, you know, how he had to continue on because they needed to get there before the Nazis did and, mm-hmm. like, he just had his back. I loved his character was really soft and, yeah, comforting as yeah. well. I wish I had a mate who just bought me oranges. <laughs> <laughs> I'm detecting a hint there. I'll just start Ubering some oranges over to Nick's yeah. place. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I thought... Um, there are just so many great little cameos, like Casey Affleck coming in mm. for like two scenes. So mm. menacing. Yeah. And um, we were talking about her before. Um, I forgot her name. The chick who plays... Um, oh, Olive Selby? Lily, Lily Hornig. Yeah, there's uh, the female chemist. Or, yeah. I think she's a chemist. And I love, yeah, her scenes where they figured out that it potentially has, you know... Um, you know, the chemicals are unstable and can hurt people's reproductive you know organs and they're like you should probably not be here and she's like screw you guys your organs are on the outside mine are on the inside like yeah like whatever like i like yeah i liked her ballsiness she was fun yeah 100 percent um i i'm gonna be honest like i talked about interstellar being like up there like oppenheimer for me is a top tier nolan film as well i think to be that to be this kind of long in the tooth with his career like it'd be easy to kind of see him drop the ball or like, you know, like it's very common for direct, like all artists really for their earlier work to be the most impressive. But I think Oppenheimer proves that he's got still has so much more to bring to filmmaking. Like and to try something he's never done before, like to do a biopic and to shoot it in a way that I've never seen a film done before. Uh, it's incredible. Like I, like I just physically can't wait for it to come out so I can watch it again. Like it's just, I think it's just mm. such a well-made flick. Um, and again, for a topic that could have been quite dry, so entertaining. And it never felt like three hours ever, mm. not at one point. Yeah, it was it was the quickest three hours, you know, I've ever sat through. It mm. flies. And considering that there's not the um, – I think a lot of Nolan's films you can plot by like certain set pieces or, you know, there's really like um, tentpole moments in the films, whereas, you know, I admittedly I've only seen it once, but like it's just kind of like a blur you know? It's a talkie. It's just talking for, for three hours with the exception mm. of one explosion. But it's as I said, like it's shot and paced like an action film. Like that's what's so crazy about it. Like even like the him like recruiting, like how are we gonna get them to you know to drive out here? 
build a town, get them to move their families. And like, it feels like it's so purposely directed the whole time. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been going for almost three hours, guys. So we'll have to wrap up in a second. <laughs> Poor Maddie. She's got to go to bed. Um, but you all brought, you both brought some questions. And I've got, I think I've got a question for you as well. So we'll jump through. Do you guys remember your questions or do you want me to just read them out for you? Would that be easier? I think we've covered some of them. I asked I asked Nick, like, what did he feel, like, anxiety or anxious about? And I think mm. we've all talked about mostly it was interstellar. I yes. did want to know, um, Nick, about any costumes that you really just thought were really impressive. Um, I thought that was a great. About, yeah, we don't talk about costumes yeah. very much. Mm. No, and a great question. And I did really think about it and I thought, what a rich, you know, like, three Batman, so you'd think there'd be something in there or, like, mm. interstellar with the space travel. But I have to tell you that the most impact was in Oppenheimer. Maybe it was the fact that I saw it in this, like, insanely crisp HD. But there's a scene between Crumholtz and, and Oppenheimer. I forgot what Crumholtz's character's name is. And they're wearing these, like, spectacular overcoats, these <laughs> wool overcoats. And they <laughs> are so one. beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And, and it was shot so lovingly that I'm like, oh, get me one of those. So <laughs> I, was, I thought it was a great question. And so, yeah, hopefully I've been able to answer it with like something a bit left of field. <laughs> Ooh, what was yours, James? Oh, I'm going to go with the obvious route. I'm going to go with the Dark Knight trilogy because even though we've seen comic accurate costumes done time and time again in the Marvel films, most of them are CGI and they're very much products of fantasy, but like every costume in those Dark Knight films feels functional, feels grounded, feels like, yeah, I, the, the, like even the idea to like make the bat suit a suit of armor with a bicycle, like a motorcycle helmet, it's all like very tangible. Like the Joker's costume is like, looks like it was stitched together by him. Like some maniac was like bits of purple and like string and like buttons and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so the idea that they've taken something that was printed on, on a comic page and never intend to be realistic, somehow he managed to translate into the real world. And you don't even bat an eyelid. Like, there are four people in each of those movies dressed up like maniacs, and the rest are just, like, regular people. And you're like, no, it fits into the world that Nolan's created. So, <laughs> like, it's, you know, in the Marvel films, and this is no disrespect to the Marvel films, we all know I love them, like, those are very high fantasy. Like, they're very, like, it, you know, the Iron Man suit, you know, looks amazing, but... No, like there's no, I don't actually think Iron Man's, you know, in an Iron Man suit. Whereas in these Batman movies, like I 100% believe that these are tangible costumes, they're real and they belong in the world he's created and could exist in our world as well. So cool. Thanks. Did you, did you have an answer? <laughs> I already said it before in that it was Murph's um, wearing. Cooper's oh, that's jacket. right. Yeah. Yeah. Murph wearing Cooper's jacket just for me is really personal and really hits home for me. And I just thought that was um, a lovely touch in that, you know, she's not. She's not ready to pick up his watch, mm. which is very, very symbolic, but she still needs her father some somehow near close by, so she wears his jacket. And I just thought that was really lovely. Mm. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer. Yeah, good answer. And then you had a question about nemeses as well. Yeah, that was just me dicking about. <laughs> <laughs> you always get honesty from Maddie on these shows. I thought about that though, and I'm like, yeah. There's like, you, again, you could go anywhere with this, but like, can you really beat the Joker? Yeah. yeah. As like the number one. Like, I, I was thinking about that. Like, not only is, the, is, is he the number one villain in the Nolan like back catalogue, but like, I think of almost any 
movie ever. Maybe Darth Vader would be the other one. Mm. <laughs> I um, I was thinking Doctor Man in Interstellar, like because Ooh. of that ongoing setup of like he's the best of us, and like if I was to come up, like no, like you could have just asked for help. You didn't need to like sabotage everything. You didn't need to like. You could have said, "Hey, there's nothing here." Do you have enough fuel to go to another planet? And can you please take me with you? Things have changed. But instead, like the madness of, you know, being isolated on a planet and the selfishness of, you know, needing to get away. Like he didn't need to sabotage everything. He could have just asked for help. So like, I think he's a very flawed character, which makes him a really wonderful ne- uh, villain and nemesis. So That's cool. Um, I was trying to think of like, yeah, I was thinking the Joker would be a really, really great nemesis because it's always backwards and forwards and he knows that he needs you to exist for him to mm. be at his best. So you're not sort of going to get, you know, get kicked out. But then I was trying to think of like what am I really like and I like plans and I like things to look nice. And so I was trying to think of like <laughs> who's a bit like dingy and dodgy or like who would, you know, who doesn't like plans and things like that and, I was thinking Scarecrow maybe would be yeah. <laughs> he's a bit grotty and a bit gross and he hangs yeah. out in yucky places. Especially and... by that third movie, he's really gross. Yeah, he's really grotty and like yeah. <laughs> um, those are some really good questions. And Nick, we kind of we've been kind of answering yours through throughout the episode, but you were talking about top tier like three Nolan movies uh, moments, but really no one else could create the moment the way Nolan has done it, and we kind of touched on yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, I think we. I mean, we've probably we've probably mentioned them, but you know, I, the ones I noted down that I thought, well, like, there's only one person who could who could create this moment, which is is so gripping. And I had I had that opening sequence in the Dark Knight where, like, yeah. you're just in from moment one. Um, I had I had the sequence of the bomb going off in Oppenheimer, and then um, the the docking scene in uh, in Interstellar. Mm. I, I also uh, wanted to add to that on, yeah. in terms of um, I what I didn't see coming and what I liked was the um, train in Interstellar going through this, uh, not in, in Inception, going through the city. Yeah, mm. that was cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think I've mentioned all three of mine, but I had the obviously behind the bookshelf the Tesseract in Interstellar, um, the reverse march in Tenet and um, the tumbling corridor in Inception, just the idea that they built a corridor and literally turned it, like, phys- like manually, physically, while the performers were inside it. I just thought, yeah, like, no one's doing that, except Nolan. There was one film, um, sorry, just to correct you, there was one film, and I've forgotten what it's called, and Fred Astaire does a tap dance, and they <sighs> rotate. You're right, he yeah. does. They rotate it, and he tap dances across the walls. Allow me to course correct slightly no one in the modern filmmaking world is doing it because they can do correct. it with do it. yeah that, that's what I, that's what i did mean yes yeah um yeah but it was first day dreaming because this was in dreams uh, <laughs> and even if he was it was three layers of dreams so i'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> um i only had one question for you guys and it's a really difficult question it's, it's the same question i ask every episode pretty much um, but I'm not going to ask for five, but just your top three Nolan films. Like there's such a wide, ca- you know, kind of catalog to p- pick from. Are there kind of three standouts for you that you're like, look, if I had to pick three moving forward, these are my three Nolan movies. Go, Nick. Okay. Oh, my God, <laughs> the pressure. Um, one and two 
I think are relatively easy for me. That would be Interstellar and The Dark Knight. Me too. And then I'm going to put Oppenheimer in it. Me too. That's my top three. (laughs) Oh, well done. (laughs) We had the same top three for Scorsese as well, like 63 episodes ago, whenever it was. I'm slightly different. I'm Interstellar, then just under that is Oppenheimer, and then Prestige is three for me. Oh, I'm so glad Prestige got some love for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. That deserves to be up there. And, like, you know... Top three, like, what does that even mean? Because I, you could shuffle another three into that and it would still be fucking yeah. sick. So I feel like the fact that I couldn't talk about the prestige in great detail means I don't deserve to put it in my top three. Um, but it would be in the top five. Um, does anyone have any final thoughts on the the master? This? We've been talking as long as the, the average runtime of a Nolan film, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I would like to add one more Oppenheimer fact. Apparently, the reel of film is so long that if you rolled it out and walked alongside it, it would take you three hours to walk or the length of the film Oppenheimer, which I thought was kind of fantastic. Wow. kind of cool. So you could watch it or walk it and you'd get to spend the same amount of time doing it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, no, just bring on bring on more. Like I'm, I'm pretty excited to see, to see what he does in the future. You know, I kind of feel like he's done like the sci-fi thriller. You know, mm. like I'd like to see more more of the historical stuff, like um, like you know Oppenheimer. Like I don't know, he's done he's done war, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just excited. All of his ideas are so original and so new that um, yeah, I don't know. I've got I feel like I've got season tickets. I'll go see everything he does. <laughs> well, let me yeah. put the let me put this question out. Said, what do you what genre do you want to work in next? He's he's, he's hit the cornerstone of sci-fi and thriller for sure. Um, and we could even say action. So what's a genre he hasn't worked in you'd like to see him do? I feel like he could knock out of the park like a financial thriller, something like... Like, um, a, wolf, like a Wolf of Wall Street or even just a Wall Street type thing? No, what's that? Um, oh, I'm shocking. See, Maddie, this is what happens when I don't have notes and I go off <laughs> script. <laughs> there's, a, there's a film, uh, oh, Mar- it's called Margin Call. Um, okay. And it's a, it's a fantastic, I would definitely recommend it. It's short and sweet. And the cast will really knock your socks off. It's like um, I remember Paul the Blu-ray. Be- I remember the Blu-ray case. Um, yeah, like vaguely. Yeah, it's got mm. like Paul Bettany, um, the guy from um, Zachary Quinto. Ah, Spock, yep. Spock, um, the guy from Gossip Girl, and you. Uh, um, sure. oh, uh, Pen Badgley. Pen Badgley. Badgley. Yeah, like it sounds like a made-up name. Pen yeah. Badgley. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jeffrey Irons. Um, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. So it's it's got a really stacked cast, and it's just set in one night as the financial crisis was breaking in like 2008, and it was oh, like cool. it's like a financial thriller kind of thing, and I kind of feel like he would that's like meaty enough for him to do some really like brainy script on, you know? Okay. Mm. What do you think, Maddie? What do you like to want to see him do next? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. Cause yeah, he's done a bit of, done sort of a bit of every sort of bigger, grander sort of scale. Like, yeah, I don't know if I want to see him do historical again. Um, I don't know. Um, like a comedy. Like well, his, fav- his, fa- his, no, his favorite movie is Talladega Nights. So. I don't want to see him do like a sport, you know, based film. Like maybe, I don't know, did you see um, 
Oh, I've forgotten what it was. Um, Amy Adams and Clint Eastwood. Is it a, The Curve? Or, Trouble with no. the Curve. Is it Trouble with the Curve? Yeah. Like that one has a bit of, you know, father-daughter relationship, <laughs> mm. you know, in and amongst a sport motif. So, like, maybe that, but, like, I don't want to see him do a comedy. I don't want to see him do a romance. I don't want to see, I don't know, maybe something else but to do with, like, a journey. Maybe something I else. I think the obvious journey. next step for him is to go Western. I feel like he could do, really? like, yeah, I feel like he could do a Western. I feel like, but, like, not like a like a thinking man's Western. Like, that you could do, like, like you could do a journey, like, in there. Yeah. Um, and, like, just personally, because I'm a fan of the genre, I'd love to see what he could do with horror. It would be so unlike anything else we've seen in the yeah. genre. Uh, you know, I was thinking something like that. Like I think he could do a a psychological thriller like um, The Game uh, or oh, what a good pick. something like that, you know, something mm. that's like maybe like going revisiting something like Memento. It's mm. maybe a little, a little smaller, a little more grounded because like I think as well one thing to be cautious of is like diminishing returns and like you, when your films are just like that spectacular, sometimes, you know, it's kind of like what I would say is happening with Marvel um, at the moment, you know, like mm. it's it's only so big you can make those films before people have sort of seen a lot of it before. So something a bit smaller and more contained might be great. Mm. Okay. It's just something with like three people in a room, like one one location, three people in a room just talking. Like ex machina, like something like that. Yeah. I'm telling you, James, you still need to finish watching the outfit. I need to start watching the outfit. Is what I need to do. Right. It's on my list. I had to have a list of reminders with the movies I've been recommended this year, and um, it's it's on there. I just haven't got to it yet. So um, let's wrap this bad boy up so everyone can go home. And once I say go home, and look, get off offline and go to bed because it is. <laughs> we've been going for three hours, and we started three and a half hours ago. Um, that is it. That is the the final say on Nolan. I'm sure we'll talk about him more uh, in upcoming lists and, of course, as he releases new films. I want to thank Maddie and Nick for showing up and uh, and bringing so much. To, like, you guys carried this episode. Like, you had so much to say. I didn't have to chime in too much at all, which is always nice, and you guys had such wonderful thoughts. So thank you so much for coming along again. Thanks for having us, as always, James. A pleasure to be on your podcast. Um. And uh, Maddie as well, thank you for coming back. It's always a joy having both of you on. So it's nice to have you guys meet properly and have you both like share ideas. So Yeah, yes, I think lovely, we well. <laughs> lovely to share the airwaves with you. Yeah, <laughs> I have lots of plans for Maddie and Nick on the show moving forward. I've told them some of them. Um, so you'll see them a lot more until they get sick of me, um, which could be any day now, to be honest. Uh, let's be Let's be real. Um, thank you to everyone listening to the show. If you want to follow along online, jump onto Instagram. I was a teenage film snob. Underscores between every single word. Give us a like, a follow, a comment. Um, you can even DM me. I do respond from time to time. Um, give the show a review. Jump onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell us what you think. I don't care if it's one star or five star. Just get involved in the conversation. Tell us your top five favorite films of all time. I'd love to hear it. Um, if you want to support the show financially, don't worry, I don't make any money out of it, but we do have merch, so head to tpublic.com or click on the link on my uh, Instagram and you can get yourself a very sweet I Was a Teenage Film Snob t-shirt. It's like 20 bucks American and you get 20% off if you're a first-time customer. That is it, done and sorted. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Nick and Maddie. They'll be back again, as I said. Uh, we've got some more exciting stuff coming up for you in the coming weeks. But until then, as I say on this show every single week, guys, I was a teenage film snob, but I'm trying to be better. We'll see you next week.